0: used to run guns to Castro when you're still on our side. We almost had Castro with us, then we tried to whack him. Everybody's flipping sides all the time. It's funny games, man, funny games. It's agency too, man. CIA and the mafia working together. Trying to whack out the beer. Mutual interest. they've been doing it for years. I come in here every night, I tear into you, I abuse you, I insult you, and just keep coming back for more. What's wrong with you? Why do you keep calling? I don't want to hear anymore. Stop talking! Go away!
1: Ladies, gentlemen, and those who do not believe in a gender binary, this is Directors Club Podcast. I am Patrick Ripple. Yes, yes, yes. I'm Jim Laskowski. It's good to be back
2: podcasting. It's like yeah. the last yeah, it's like the last, you know, neighborhood circle
1: in town because people just don't talk to each other anymore. It's uh, true. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let me introduce old man Jim Laskowski. Um That's kinda uh, been you- my MO lately. So, what do you think about uh, what do you think about Kurt Cobain's suicide, old man Jim Leskowski? You think these uh, rotten teenagers don't have anything to complain about? Mm, I think Courtney Love did it. Yeah, I really do. That'd be amazing if in Andy. I, I'm referring to the Andy Rooney like 60 Minutes thing uh, <laughs> after Kurt Cobain killed himself, where he was just talking about like how these teenagers haven't actually dealt with any hardships and they've never had to been shipped off to war or anything like that. Oh yeah, which is true. But it'd be amazing if it if it was like uh I don't know why everyone thinks he committed suicide anyway. Clearly that bitch of his wife, Courtney Love, did it. <laughs> I mean, Cra- if you really measure a shotgun, you couldn't put it in your mouth unless you were pulling the trigger with your toe. I'm a dude from your dorm room. <laughs>
3: dude, Crazy Mickey Rooney. High.
1: Yeah. That would that'd be cool if it was uh Mickey Rooney. Yeah. Because then it would be an Asian Asian impression. (laughs) (laughs) Or he'd be singing with Judy Carlin. (laughs) you think of Andy Rooney. Yeah, and Mickey Rooney's
2: also a a disturbing clown in Babe Pig in the City, too. I think of him in that. Well, suffice to say, we don't have uh, Mickey Rooney or the great Barry Champlain on the show. Rather, we have a younger, brighter, energetic, and intelligent (laughs) guest who was a former host of the Big Kahuna podcast, he once emailed us saying that we're responsible for turning his life into movie fandom. Welcome to the show, Thomas the Tank Wishlaw.
4: <laughs> Wee baby Thomas. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, very excited to talk about Oliver Stone, <laughs> uh, yeah. out of, of all people.
1: Well, thanks for coming on board. For, <laughs> no, uh, it no is worries. it is unusual because uh, so Thomas, you you uh, you're you're like around 19 nineteen. I'm twenty six. Yeah. Jim is 35. Get um, off my lawn. And Oliver Stone, I would say, I don't know if more than any director, but certainly as much as any director we've covered on this podcast, he was a director of his time, um, mm. where a lot of his movies, Jeez, I would agree. Uh, were very important for when they came out, and they couldn't have just been made at any time. He's very reactionary,
4: kind of a director.
2: True. Very true.
4: Just but, to make everyone feel old for a second, uh, I w- hadn't even been born yet when Natural and Killers came out. So. Oh
2: my god! <laughs> I do feel old.
4: <laughs> Usually, you yeah. know, I'm I'm young enough. I'm young enough that uh, just to make
1: everyone feel old, stuff it re- generally doesn't work on me. But that's amazing! Wow. Yeah. I yeah. Hadn't even been born yet.
2: I was oh. in high school. <laughs> Oh
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. God. Uh, oh man. Hey you know, Thomas, Thomas, what's the first Robin Williams movie you saw?
2: Oh, you just saw My Thunder.
4: <laughs> God. Um. Well, it's probably Aladdin. Like. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's probably oh, so, Aladdin. But, I mean, the but first Aladdin. One,
1: what was the so? What was the first Disney movie you saw? Because I, I was thinking about this. Um, my partner Regina wrote this uh, sort of obituary for Ron Williams. And great work, great writing. Yeah, it's really good. Um, uh, Regina has a has a uh, blog called Panda Bear Shape, consistent Panda Bear Shape. It's on uh, pandabearshape.wordpress.com, um, and she wrote this uh, obituary for uh, Robin Williams, in which uh, uh, they, they they sort of identified um, something I think is true, which is that for people of uh, our generation, Robin Williams was sort of uh, a really early celebrity because Aladdin mm-hmm. was sort of the first uh, cartoon where you see a celebrity, where the celebrity voice is very clearly a celebrity voice. I mean, if, if I'm going to say anything, <laughs> like that might be the most uh, poisonous part of Robin Williams' legacy is that now all animated films follow the Aladdin Tradition and it's all celebrities making manic pop culture references. Yeah, like Will but, Smith and Shark to Shark Tale, and you know, or yeah, literally any famous person. They've been yeah. a, they've been in a uh, animated uh, a cranked out animated film in DreamWorks that DreamWorks has made that is full of pop culture references. Um, and I, and it, and it's very true because I remember like all the first movies you see in theaters are like Disney movies when you're a little kid, or at least that that was certainly true for me. So, like, mm-hmm. my my first movie, I think, was Beauty and the Beast. Um, that was the first movie I re- recall seeing in theaters. And uh, Aladdin, of course, is a very early one. Um, and that was actually, like, kind of my introduction to what even comedy was, you know? Because, it, like, there are jokes in Beauty and the Beast, but, like, the genie... The character of the genie is just a comedian in the middle of that movie (laughs) like (laughs) a manic comedian yeah exactly like the character of the genie is basically if robin williams was a genie this is what the (laughs) this is what he would do Mm -hmm. and um what was the so like what was the first uh and you're so much younger than me thomas uh what was the first disney movie you saw in theaters
4: uh, I'm pretty sure the first, actually, this is probably also the first film I ever saw in theaters was probably Toy Story.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, nice.
4: Like, because at the time I would have been like two or three when that was t- Toy Story one and Toy Story two were coming out uh-huh. around then. So I'm pretty sure my parents took me to that because they keep telling me that I would run around say y- the house uh, screaming about come in Star Command or something like that. Um. Uh. I mean, I remember. Watching Snow White at home, I had a like VHS copy of that, and I watched that a fair bit. But otherwise, I don't remember too much else about Disney movies. Sure,
3: mm-hmm.
4: like My- pretty much anything film-wise that I watched, after, like before the age of fourteen, I don't remember. Like, <laughs> to be honest, yeah, yeah. It's yeah,
1: and for me, I, it, it's so memorable for me though, just because Disney w- had that renaissance. It had that Little Mermaid in ninety 90- in eighty nine, Beauty and the Beast in like ninety one um and then Aladdin. you know Aladdin Lion King oh yeah Lion King like cuz Disney animated films were kind of shitty for a while like it oh, so bad <laughs> they would just go down and it would be like The Great Mouse Detective The Rescuers Down Under and stuff like that like yeah. they were yeah, yeah they, they were they, just kind of garbage they went, through, they went through a
2: slump for sure
1: and then um you know and then after Lion King then Pixar which was you know it's part of Disney and all that but um But yeah, yeah, so Robin Williams was a big part of my life growing up, uh, if only because mm -hmm. he was the genie in Aladdin. And then I was like, oh, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to be a funny person in a movie, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Well, now you're a funny
2: person on a podcast. That's just as uh, good. that's debatable. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, it's um, tough. Like, I mean, my my earliest exposure to comedy was more, you know, your your absurdist stuff and Steve Martin and things like that. I mean that was like the first stand-up record I remember listening to on repeat. But um, you know, my dad never owned any Robin Williams stand-up records, but I understand like, you know, his his major influence and I remember my dad telling me like, oh, you know, uh if you like Robin Williams, his biggest influence is this guy, Jonathan Winters, you know, and like I, I learned a lot about comedy not specifically because of Robin Williams, but just because he was a cultural icon in that in that universe, and you know, it's 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 really just it's. I was so shaken and, and by his loss, you know, and I feel really strongly a lot uh, about the issues surrounding it, and you know, there, it's a lot of weird uh, media coverage has resulted, in, you know, publicizing the stigma of. Mental illness, and then the Parkinson's thing came out, and there's just a lot surrounding uh, Robin Williams' passing that's really interesting and kind of complex. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've gone on records as saying, like, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of, you know, his manic energy and a lot of his comedies. But his darker, more dramatic stuff, I really, really dug quite a bit. It's um, particularly The World's Greatest Dad. I mean, every time I watch that movie, I've watched it like four or five times now, and I love it more and more
4: every time. I mean, that was kind of the thing I remembered about Robin Williams, was that he would... He had this kind of seamless ability to go from the manic scene to the heartfelt, emotional scene, kind of just like that. in yeah. Like, the snap of a... Like, and... I mean, the one that always gets me is Dead Poet Society, where he just just breaks into tears after the one boy commits suicide, and I mm-hmm. was really choked up when I saw that at 16. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, me and, too. Me too. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what made him who, different from somebody like a Chris Rock, or, I mean, I don't know who else was probably a comedian from the 90s. Chris Rock is the first one that I thought of, but or an Adam Sandler or something like that, is that he had the ability to do both ends of the spectrum. Sure. I think that's I'm looking what at, I love about him.
1: I'm looking at his IMDB and I guess it yeah, it only just now kind of occurred to me that like Thomas, you like you sort of you know, like you probably like Ron Williams wasn't really a movie star when you were uh like growing up.
4: <laughs> no, he he wasn't.
1: Because <laughs> Ron Williams is um, a movie I... like Toys like the movie Toys, <laughs> no one remembers the movie Toys. Toys was a big movie. And that was because it yeah. was the big Robin Williams movie. Like, Hook was a big movie, you know. Um those flopped pretty much. Yeah, Dead Poet Society and like there's all these really big movies and he was a movie star. Mrs. Doubtfire was huge. Um, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire watched a million times, Jumanji was a really big movie. Jack was a big budget movie, that kind of flopped. And then he had that movie with like Billy Crystal, Father's Day, and then, you know Goodwill Hunting and Yeah. And that I, was sort I, I, of th- that began his sort of transition like Goodwill Hunting was sort of sure. transition into more indie films yeah yeah I, I remember specifically uh,
2: at a young age and even today being really moved by Awakenings but I think I mean Penny Marshall you know she sort of resorts to sentimentality and manipulation of, you know, the audience, I think. But at the same time, like, I have such a huge interest in what that film is tackling, which is, you know, uh, the dopamine receptors and how these people basically became comatose as a result of losing their ability to produce dopamine, which also oddly enough is a form of Parkinson's that, uh, that's what they cover in that film, and it's very interesting uh, to see Robin Williams portray uh, Oliver Sacks essentially, and Like, uh, you know, (laughs) a lot of people were always saying, oh, if it's bearded Robin Williams, that means he's playing it serious. Um, Yeah, I just, I mean, I also was really taken with uh, his performance in One Hour Photo. I I mean, I think it's a little, the, the movie itself is flawed, but I just, I just sensed, like, a vulnerability and a realness to that character.
1: Like, you could tell that he probably went to some dark places. Well, I mean, unlike a lot of stand-up comedians, he went to Juilliard. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like he's a classically trained actor. Um, Right. uh, When he's in Hamlet, he's in Hamlet. You know, (laughs) like like that isn't it? Isn't like what is? What is that fucking? It's it's not like Jerry Seinfeld in Hamlet. You know, it's it's an actor in Hamlet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I think it would be dishonest and shitty to be like. Oh yeah, Uh, uh, Robin Williams. I love all of his movies. He's always been great. He's hysterical. Like I, I don't like most of his movies. I think most of his movies are bad. And I do think like, like he fell into the whole like grow a beard and be serious and Mm -hmm. and just because you're not being manic. I, I do think Robin Williams is sort of the patient zero of the comedians who do dramatic roles, and then everyone acts like it's the greatest performance ever.
2: They elevated a little bit more, yeah. Like like, like Jim, like Jim
1: Carrey and Truman Show, yeah, or Pat Oswalt and Young Adult. Like there are like good performances, but people like to elevate them just because it's like, what? He didn't tell a joke. What's going on? Um, like I don't want <laughs> pret- to I don't want to pretend like I love them. I, I definitely agree with you about World's Greatest Dad. World's Greatest Dad is great, but um, yeah, I do. It is uh like. I don't know, like, the most baseline uh, ground level of, of my taste in comedy is Robin Williams. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that, was, that said everything, and things built off of that, and I removed some of that and stuff. But at the, the very center, you have someone free-associating and improvising and um, just letting their imagination spiral off like crazy. Like, I remember, like, growing up in the 90s, to me, the big question was, who do you think is funnier, Jim Carrey or Robin Williams? And, like, to me, Robin Williams is the warmer, uh, faster, um, sort of a sillier version. And then Jim Carrey was sort of the more uh, edgy, um, insult-based, uh, kind of aggravated humor. And, like, I was just gravitated towards Robin Williams, and then, you know, you build things off of that. And you you go back and you're like, oh, Mrs. Doubtfire not not only not a hysterical movie, it's actually a pretty gross, <laughs> like transphobic movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, yes. like, like I'm not gonna go back and say like, oh man, you know what's an underrated classic? Toys. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna no. pretend like he's really good in The Fisher King.
2: Yeah, that's another one too. That I, I, I imagine like even I, I imagine like watching World's Greatest Dad. You know, after his passing, would be a little strange. Although, like what takes place in the movie—not to give anything away—it's not directly a suicide, but it's something happens in that film. That's well, it's
1: over know. two. It's over two years old.
2: Yeah,
4: and, so, yeah It's true. It's but, so uh, we can spoil it.
2: Thomas, have you seen World's
4: Greatest Dad? Ah, <laughs> uh, go ahead, spoil it. You sure? <laughs> I actually haven't seen that yet. You
2: should see it. I—I I, I know you'd love it. It's—you uh, know, his. His son uh, dies of, you know, asphyxiation. I mean, it's autoerotic asphyxiation, but still, it's... I I mean, there's just, like, little things here and there that I imagine will be kind of, you know, strange to to revisit. And even the uh, end of the... Mark Maron recently just reposted his interview with uh, Robin Williams, which is phenomenal. It's actually what got me hooked on Mark Maron's podcast was hearing that interview, because it gave me a different perspective on Robin Williams. I mean, he riffs here and there, but it's... You know, he, he really reveals a lot about himself. Um, but I mean, even at the end of that interview, he does like a kind of an improvised riff on suicide, which is just strange to hear in in hindsight. Um, but That's I mean, kind of awkward. He, he's gonna he will be missed just because I have no doubt he would have you know gone on to do more great work. Um, I mean, I I just felt like this humane, open-hearted presence in him. You know, and I I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of comedians and a lot of people have said this time and time again that, you know, uh, you know, comedians are are very dark and that's how they, you know, their outlet is through comedy. And that's how they deal with their demons. Um, (laughs) You know, I I was
1: I was was thinking about the I was thinking about the other day when I was 17 um, and I was switching medications yet again. um, I had this psychiatrist who I had this new psychiatrist because we had just moved just recently moved to, uh, Illinois. Um, so that's probably, it's probably closer to like 15 or whatever, but like, um, and she was sort of just saying a lot of things and not really talking to me and not really treating me like a person or whatever. And I just was not having any of it. And I was a teenager. So I was just being shitty and sarcastic the whole time. Like, Oh yeah, no, and it's like, well, actually, I, you know, I just being an asshole. And she, I <laughs> remember she said to me, and uh, she goes, you know, humor is a very primitive. Uh, he- she goes, you know, humor is a very primitive defense mechanism. <laughs> that was what she said to me. And my, wow. And my reply was, my reply was, yeah, that's what people who aren't funny like to think. <laughs> <laughs> and like, that's like, great. I like, I had like, you know, I of course I didn't know it at the time when I was in fucking kindergarten, but like that had to be. Part of uh, you know the reason I was drawn to Robin Williams was just like like oh yeah we deal with shit the same way <laughs> mm-hmm. like it's an important it's 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 important way to deal with things is just to instantly deflate and defuse everything with a joke or just with a silly thing or
3: yeah or, tell, or
2: tell a bad pun yeah yeah <laughs> or tell a
1: bad pun um, tell like the worst pun you've ever heard like sometimes all you can do really is just. Tell a really fucking horrible pun that makes everyone around you sad, and that's, you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, i i will I will definitely say
2: that uh you know the, especially with the the most recent season of uh Louie, there's stuff in that season that really like felt like therapy to me watching it. I just like I feel like that guy is tapping into a deep place that I don't think any therapist could tap into and he's doing it in such a fierce audacious way, a very direct way. And I think like there's something people should go back and watch and it's, you know, from this last season where Robin Williams makes an appearance in late in a episode of Louie that's incredibly moving and beautiful. So I mean, that's that's a good way to remember him too.
1: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, uh, Louis CK, uh, you don't really have to like, you can be fearless, you know, because you have a show where the only thing you're stuck to is a budget, you yeah. know, <laughs> like that is, that's insane. So he can sort of do whatever he wants. He doesn't really have to be tied down by it to anything. Um, and that's sort of what makes that show so amazing. Whether or not every episode is the funniest thing you've ever seen or is great on its own, like. It's just amazing that he's able to do that,
2: absolutely, and uh you know, like I said, Mark Marin's tribute most recently just posted this week is really something special. that guy has a way with words for sure um yeah let's let's lighten things up, huh? Let's sure move on to what we watched what we watched, yeah. Here's a song.
1: Good song. What a great, what a great song. Yeah, thanks, Jim. man. I'm gonna, it's I'm gonna rest 10. back. I'm gonna rest back in my couch here. <laughs> Hold on, let's see. I'm you're scared. so proud, and you're relaxed now. Yeah, I'm gonna be like five feet away from the mic. That'll probably be good. Um, hey, Thomas, what? we like yeah, to start with you... the guest. We sure do, you All know right. that. You listen to the show. I do
4: know that. I, I listen to the show every, every two weeks, Aww. so, um... Uh, it's my favorite podcast, so I gotta I can listen to it every two weeks. How um, do you listen to it every two weeks? We don't release it that often. We're well, trying. <laughs> we try, but we always we fail. fail. <laughs> when, <laughs> I actually have a time machine, and I can go into the future that and get future episodes and stuff. No, that is fascinating. Uh, I know it's it's amazing. Uh, we have time-traveling Thomas Weisloff. Is- hey Thomas,
1: uh, I, now now that we have you here, we might as well do a little interview. How does this whole capitalism thing shake out?
2: <laughs> no, just watch uh, Snowpiercer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> it, it all ends up on a fucking train. Yeah. yeah pretty
4: yeah. much. The all right. World. Um. Anyways, uh, speaking of capitalism, I ended up going out to the theater twice in a, two days in a row last week uh, to check out Guardians of the Galaxy and Lucy. The two things that I saw.
2: I've seen um, one of those.
4: Yeah, and um. <laughs> I will uh, fully admit that I'm the stick in the mud regarding Guardians and was not a fan. I mean, Guardians kind of told me that this summer has been the summer of I'm a step out of line with everybody else. Because everything I've seen in the mainstream theater that that received critical acclaim this summer... I've felt was kind of mediocre, and then everything that didn't receive a critical acclaim, I thought was pretty darn good that I did see. I mean, I didn't see Transformers or Spider-Man, but, like, I thought Maleficent was really good, and I ended up thinking that Lucy was really good, even though a lot of people are kind of lukewarm on that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. I will fully admit that I think Lucy, my reaction to Lucy about, oh my gosh, this was the greatest thing ever, was that I saw Guardians the day before, and I wasn't a fan. And I, I mean... I don't know. Do you guys are you guys fans of James Gunn? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah I, I'm I, a fan of Slither. I'll say that much. Right. I think I think Super doesn't quite work, but I'm a fan of Slither. Yeah, Super. I think Super is kind of. I think Super is a mess. But um, <laughs> uh, I, and I, 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 mean, I am a fan of uh, of his uh, PG porn shorts. If you've ever <laughs> seen those,
2: <laughs> didn't he do? He did Tromeo and Juliet as well, didn't he?
1: Uh, he was one of the credited writers and one of the oh, okay. un,
4: one of the uncredited directors. Um, I'm pretty sure he's one of the credited writers on that live-action Scooby-Doo movie that I yeah, hate no, with he, passion, he, so.
1: he wrote Ooh. He wrote Scooby-Doo, but you know, yeah. you're know, you a screenwriter in Hollywood. You take the Scooby-Doo job because that's yeah. what <laughs> allows you to buy a
3: house. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't a
1: necessarily, I, I don't necessarily uh, judge uh, James Gunn on Scooby-Doo. <laughs> um,
4: and mostly my issue with uh, Guardians was that I felt that it wanted to be Star Wars, like – and uh, it's kind of the thing I came to the conclusion was that what makes Tarant- somebody like Tarantino a is somebody who does reference things a lot and will use kind of homage to his advantage is that Tarantino will do things. He will use a film that you've never heard of, right? Like he will he will use something a little more obscure than Star Wars, if that makes sense. And sure. I was I was a little bit miffed about um, how much it, how much cooler it would it felt it would be if it wasn't star wars if that makes sense like if he was using like last starfighter or something like that instead of <laughs> star wars <laughs> i mean i felt that would have been more of an interesting choice there is a scene in guardians where a character fires a cannon and it has the exact same sound cue as when luke fires the torpedoes into the Death Star. It literally is like bump 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 and then and then like it was it was kind of i was kind of taken out of the movie because of that um there's a semen joke halfway through the film um and i don't know if that's in poor taste or not um more than anything i think this is a film that everyone is proclaiming as this great cool fun masterpiece and i don't think it is like more than anything, I think that there are a lot of kind of flaws with Guardians, and I will fully admit that I am a touch out of line with everybody else, and everybody else seemed to have a much better time than I did watching Guardians. But I think that James Gunn James Gunn likes to take risks, and I think that's his strong suit. I think he's taking the wrong risks in some sense. What like, risks is he taking with Guardians? With Guardians, he takes – more or less, the risk he takes with Guardians is the actual development of Guardians as a property. Like, I don't know if you guys read a lot of graphic novels and stuff like that. Not
3: that much,
4: but – Not that much? Okay, Not Marvel. Um, But Guardians is kind of a bizarre property. Like, it's based around when everyone at Marvel was on acid and they wrote a character (laughs) – they wrote a raccoon character based off of a Beatles song. And <laughs> all kinds of bizarre things like that. It's a bizarre movie to choose. He decides he wants to go for some elaborate jokes and stuff like that. That he that that like the semen joke basically that was halfway through the film, um, and and such like that. He likes to take James Gunn kind of likes to take risks. In he wants to use emotional scenes halfway through his movie, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that at times those emotional scenes were great. What I would like to see him do instead of you do that is stick to one tone right like instead of going from this huge high concept joke to a one-liner to an elaborate emotional scene to an action scene just kind of pick one tone and then i'd like to see him actually have a like properly developed female character for once in one of his movies because if you think about super ellen page is really just a prop (laughs) like and really only serves as kind of like to move the plot, advance the plot forward. And Zoe Saldana's, Zoe Saldana's character in this movie is kind of the same way. Like she really doesn't have an arc at all. Um, Hmm. That's kind of like more than anything to understand this movie, you have to kind of understand the fact that the raccoon and the talking walking tree that only (laughs) knows three words are the best characters in the entire movie. Kind of, (laughs) kind of says a lot about, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, That being said, I thought Lucy, the next night when I saw Lucy, was awesome. Like, I was fully behind that. What I liked the best about Lucy was that it spends the first 20 minutes kind of explaining things and then just forgets that those things even happened, like were even explained. Um, Yeah. Which sounds sounds kind of like a terrible thing, but I thought it worked heavily to this film's advantage because this film just did not care at all. Right, whereas Guardians of the Galaxy felt like that kid that wants to be super hip and cool and I want to hang out at the cool kids' table. Lucy was the kid that didn't really care whether it was at the cool kids' table and just went and bought the hipster eighty shoes anyway. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I mean there are, some, there are some absolute bullshit moments in Lucy. Like there is a ridiculous scene in which she says, calls her mother and says, I remember the taste of your breast milk. And I was on board for the bullshit the whole way. So (laughs) that was basically what made Lucy so kind of interesting for me.
2: I think it kind of goes up its own ass. And, you know, like Morgan Freeman saying, she's building a (laughs) supercomputer. I mean, like like the expository dialogue of like explaining everything that's happening while it's happening. You guys are just
1: you guys are explaining the weirdest movie because I've seen (laughs) neither. So yeah, um, yeah. All, it, it sounds so, like a So my takeaway a bunch of from pot. Guardians of the Galaxy is that semen left a bad taste in Thomas's mouth, yeah. and <laughs> and that uh, <laughs> Lucy Lucy remembers the taste of breast milk, <laughs> and Morgan and Morgan Freeman, t- t- <laughs> and Morgan Freeman talks like an old prospector. <laughs> she's building a supercomputer. <laughs> right, pretty much what happens at the end. Like I, I was kind
2: of with it in parts. Like I thought some of the action. What sequences is the plot really of Lucy? Well you need to, okay. You need uh, to just, have you guys seen the movie, the movie Limitless? Patrick? Have you seen the movie Limitless? You, <laughs> yeah, sorry, you stole it, but that's okay. You've seen Limitless. It's pretty much the same movie <laughs> where she gets. Uh, you know, some, some crazy drugs that tap into her brain so she's able to use more of it than... Apparently we only use 10% of our brain, which isn't true. And, uh, you know, sh- as the movie goes along, you know, she's able to do more crazy shit and manipulate reality and manipulate phones, and, I don't know, it's just, it, it gets crazy, but at the same time I like it just because, it you know, it, it tackles neuroscience and interesting... Ideas, but at the same time, like, it's Luke Besson, and he doesn't really follow through on those ideas, and he gets just kind of lost by the... I, I just, like, I did not like the way this movie wrapped up, where she's, like, traveling through time or something. I, like, I was like, what the... F-? <laughs> I know you want to make this like your 2001, kind of. <laughs> like, just talking about where do we all come from, and what does identity mean, and what is, you know... I, I mean, I understand, like, his intention, but his follow-through on that was just... Really messy, um, but at the same time, like there were moments where you know that you know I obviously harken back to something like The Matrix where she's able to you know bend reality and mess with people that I thought was really fun and kind of funny to watch um, you know I mean there are things about it that I found interesting and enjoyable, but by the very end, I was kind of like what 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 was that about what was what was he trying to say with how this movie wraps up? I couldn't figure it out
4: <laughs> I mean and i think that that is kind of what made me so like this movie so much was that yes he sets up all of these big ideas and then kind of like a kind of like a kid playing a video game he just forgets that they even happened and yeah. doesn't really care at the end and i figured i felt that that was what made this so kind of interesting for me was that i was left to kind of build the ideas build it myself if that makes sense like, mm-hmm. build what he's actually trying to say myself and what should have been there myself. And I felt that that's what drew me to this film more so than something like Guardians did in its, its film, basically.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I give him credit for trying. And I certainly like... I mean, I, but there's parts in this movie where I'm just, like, laughing because... And I don't think it's intentional laughing, but... Where, like, you know, she hands Morgan Freeman this USB drive with all the (laughs) knowledge of the world.
4: I'm like, what the fuck? That was the greatest thing ever, because I I saw this with my mom, (laughs) and she's like, what is that? I'm like, it's a USB. The entire knowledge of the human world is on a USB. (laughs) And I laughed so hard. It was fantastic.
2: Yeah, well, (laughs) I also was confused, but, I mean... I will say, like, I actually like the setup of this movie, and I, I think Scarlett Johansson is choosing very interesting roles lately. And like, just the, I like the fact that she sort of becomes like alien-like as she becomes smarter and you know more controlled. It's really interesting, like watching this alongside something like Under the Skin, which is like the antithesis of this movie. But it's still like, j- just her choices of like between her and Under the Skin and Lucy. Like she's kind of tap, tapping into some really interesting thematic ideas, but I mean, Luc Bassan's not the guy to really tackle something intellectual. But I think, like, in terms no. of mind, mindless action, and you know, I, I was enjoying myself more than I thought I would, because I'm not really a big fan of this guy. Like, I know everybody goes ape-dooky over the professional, but I'm not a big fan of that. So, I mean, but at uh, the same I'm time, like...
4: I,
1: I, Luke, I enjoyed Luke. this more than ah. I thought. Have you A- and I looked think that Luke Basson's career, recently, it, it no. it's
4: all like bizarre things. He, <laughs> yeah. he, like,
1: he did the so. Family. He did that weird. Yeah, he did that weird. Whatever that was supposed to be, family. That weird.
4: Was that the one? With, uh,
1: De Niro. Yeah. Diana yeah. Diana And uh, and, uh, and uh, Catwoman, uh, Pfeiffer.
4: Oh God.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And but then he did. Three, um, he did three animated movies. He did a whole trilogy, Arthur and the Invisibles. Have you watched oh yeah, those, those What? Terrible. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what are these th- Well, he did three of them, apparently. There, I didn't even it's- know there were three. I've heard of Arthur and the Invisibles, I hadn't heard of the other two. And then he did this movie about that was like a biopic or something about uh Burma's democracy
4: movement,
3: huh?
1: Yeah, this- like. <laughs>
4: His, his career seems really bizarre like he's all over when, when you just he wrote, he wrote taken
2: so I give him credit for that I mean oh, yeah. his, he's kind of didn't seems he... like a
4: to- oh go ahead Patrick
1: I, I was gonna ask like did he is did he produce um uh Hannah or was that just something that okay no he didn't produce Hannah he produced lockout he produced Columbia so he apparently he's had like a yeah, he produced Taken. So he's had sort of a foot in Hollywood, and he, this is his return was Lucy, this sort of uh, action movie. Isn't it more of an action movie than Limitless?
4: Uh, yes, definitely more of an action yeah. movie than Limitless. Okay, without, so like without. an action movie take on
1: Limitless. Mm-hmm. Um, God, that's weird. Did this movie uh, have like a Fifth Element kind of vibe? Cause I know uh, some people don't a like Fifth bit, Element. bit, actually.
4: Yeah, it... It does some really kind of weird things. Like the villain Choi Min Sik does not say a single word of English in yeah. the entire film. He doesn't have a good. single line of English dialogue. <laughs> um, there's, it, it's kind of a hard movie to describe, like in terms of yeah. how kind of how it seems like a relatively sort of simple high concept thing, as as kind of as much as that's an oxymoron, and it kind of evolves into this really bizarre thing that's about nothing. Like, <laughs> I mean, if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah, I don't. He I wrote, don't know what he was trying to get at with the ending, but
1: <laughs> he also wrote. He also he also wrote the transporters, or the transporter mm. the that uh that that Jason Statham, yeah, the Jason Statham <laughs> series, or he wrote the first one,
4: and I guess yeah. like the second. And he seems like somebody that's got a lot of charisma. Like he, <laughs> what like that? that makes
3: sense.
1: Like. <laughs> he wrote band. He wrote if you remember Banditas, that movie with uh, Penelope Cruz and uh, um, Selma Hayek.
2: Oh, I remember Banditas, all right.
1: Um, <laughs> like he wrote that. Like
4: this guy's works a lot. Like he wrote Columbiana. Like yeah, he which is <laughs> I'm just reading what he's written. It's just That's kind of bizarre. That's crazy. He you wrote the story Three days from to Ken- kill? Yeah.
1: <laughs> like he's oh, all over what? the place.
4: <laughs> That's weird. So are we going
1: to do guy. an episode... So Jim, are we going to do an episode on Luke Besson? Yes, please. Okay, cool. <laughs>
2: awesome. Uh, you know, I uh, need to rewatch Fifth Element to see why people like it so much, because when I first saw it, I didn't like it.
1: Oh, I adore Fifth Element. I know most people do. I like, okay, I mean, Fifth Element, I think, is better than Southland Tales, but I like them for similar reasons, which is Hmm. pretty much every scene has one thing in it that is not expected, and if you're going to do a boilerplate, someone saves the fucking world sci-fi action movie, like, that is the bare minimum you should have, is like you should subvert audience expectations left and right and just do weird stuff. And fifth element is full of just weird ideas and moments. And there's just that whole future space opera moment where she's doing that crazy dance. And it's, and like there's and Ruby rod by Chris Tucker is the craziest thing ever. And the way that Chris Tucker from that movie, the way his introduction is shot is really fascinating. Like, it's just really weird movie and I feel Lucy like So was Lucy. I and I feel like I'd much rather watch a really weird movie than a uh, generic movie. And you
4: and, know, and that's like, kind of what happened to me. Like I So that's much is is that how you through, feel about Lucy? Yes, that I would much rather sit through the bizarreness of Lucy than go see the kind of the same Marvel storyline and Guardians of the Galaxy and guardians of the galaxy basically (laughs) like if that makes sense yeah i i mean that's not to say that i'm anti-marvel because i have enjoyed some of those movies it's just that sometimes i find that they kind of all feel like the same thing if that makes (laughs) sense
1: well they have a very specific aesthetic they don't really distinguish themselves in that way i saw something
2: i saw something that distinguished itself what was that that was a segue.
1: oh you saw a segue. (laughs) Uh, a, a mode of transportation that involves leaning yes, <laughs> that is
2: cool. uh you know a lot of people know that I'm kind of drawn towards you know philosophically interesting films, and there's one that recently came out on v o d that I decided to check out on a whim. it's called the Congress It is loosely adapted by the director of Waltz with Bashir, which I think we watched together, Patrick. We did, uh... Yeah. And, uh, um, we watched that with that, uh, alongside that crazy Michael J. Fox scavenger hunt movie. Yes! Yeah. And that was pretty wild. So, um, it's adapted from a science fiction novella by uh, Stanislaw Lem, who also wrote the source material for Solaris. Uh, I had no idea what I was in for. Um... Mm. I mean, I heard some acclaim from critics that I, I rather respect. Um, it's one that is going to take some, some time for me to fully assess and say, yes, this is a great movie. Right now, I'm, I'm torn, but overall, I think it's something that people need to check out because it's one of the more original things I've seen in a while. Essentially, Robin Wright, she plays herself as a failed movie star. Uh, and she's living in kind of this fantastically bohemian kind of lifestyle with her kids in this converted aircraft hangar of an airport. And like. It, and then all of a sudden, Herbie Keitel shows up and plays her agent. And he's sort of berating her for making very bad choices throughout her career. And it's You know, strange, like oh, you were once Buttercup, and like just you know the 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 weird meta contextual things going on. You know, it's it's it starts off like almost like a like a like a Sunset Boulevard riff on you know aging and you know losing your star power and stuff like that. But um, Harvey Keitel gets word that there's a new way to rejuvenate your career by Agreeing to the studios to make a digital replication of your face and body so their effects guys can use the younger version of you for new computer generated films. While Robin Wright gets to quit show business, she's still making royalties based on her digital self. Which, you know, I know that like Simone sort of tried to tap into that idea of, you know, just digital. Movie stars and stuff, but this is just something all its own because about halfway through the movie, we flash forward 20 years to see, you know, the older version of Robin Wright attending a congress sponsored by the studio's corporate owners. And it's at this point our perspective shifts to an animated imaginary world uh, that is essentially Ralph Bakshi esque. And if you've seen *Waltz with Bashir*, which is obviously mostly animated, um, it's it's similar to that, but a lot more surreal, bizarre, just strange imagery left and right. And it, like it, it, reverts back to. Um, it's it's just a hard movie to summarize because like later on, we you know come across this doctor played by Paul Giamatti who's like trying to explain the importance of you know humanity retaining itself and and how technology is changing it definitely gets very preachy in points but i actually like really gravitated towards the ideas in this movie but one thing i will say is that it shoehorns a lot to where my brain felt like it was going to blow off i mean there's
1: what do you ideas mean about, when you say it shoehorns
2: i think it 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 just pushes way too many ideas into a movie that you know, it starts out one way where it's like a commentary on Hollywood and, you know, studios. It's almost like, uh, not, I'm trying to think of that movie off the top of my head. It might be my favorite year, but that's not it. Uh, no, it's, I'm trying to think. Okay, well, I won't bring that one up then until I think of it. But, I mean, it's it really starts off as just a very simple story of, you know, Robin Wright trying to, you know, get her career back together and this new technology is. Um, invading Hollywood, and yet it's helping everybody's careers, because they could still, you know, live on in a digital form um, and then you know, it, it gets really complex, because like, you know, John Hamm shows up as an animated character, who's like you know, talks about uh, what it means to be digital, and it's just really weird, it, it turns into like Waking Life meets, you know, Ralph Bakshi in a way but I think like the shoehorning comes with like an overabundance of themes that I don't n- think entirely is digestible on the first viewing, nor you know you really walk away thinking like oh my god this movie is saying this specifically because there's um, a moment where we realize that you know you can take a chemically enhanced experience and basically become Robin Wright. Um, So there's just that commentary on chemical enhancement and identity and, you know, technology-controlled lives. So, I mean, there's just so much going on, but because I find all those ideas on a philosophical level very interesting to, um, you know, delve into, and the fact that this movie is very original and it just turns on a dime, there's an incredible monologue by Harvey Keitel who's like, phenomenal in this. It's the first time in a long time where I was like, damn, Harvey how, how Keitel. Uh, and Robin Wright's it's really great, too. I mean, there's, there's a lot to get from watching this movie, but it's so complex that I'm not entirely sure I comprehended it on the first viewing. So, I mean, if anybody could see this, I would love to hear what people's take on it is, because I think narratively it's kind of sloppy, but... In terms of it being an intellectual experience i kind of loved it at the same time so i really want you to see this patrick and let me know what you think because it's so very what, what about this
1: what about this to you separates this from say you know it sounds like being john malkovich it sounds like, Simone, yeah. like
2: yeah yeah no totally
1: what what about it steps outside of of sort of that previously walked territory
2: well, it starts out that way, but then, like I said, it decides to introduce us to this animated, imaginary world that Robin Wright enters,
1: and, I mean, you get glimpses of what is there A is. There, is there a central, like, plot? Like, I know, like, the premise makes sense to me, but is there, like, is it the story of her trying to take it back and remove her image, or is there a a conf- a central conflict or a central goal I mean, or like maintaining a
2: maintaining a sense of self and not losing yourself essentially like i mean she's basically
1: selling her soul essentially a sell you know i mean she's i i mean just in sheer like just logical the way the story plays out what is she trying to achieve or like what is going on like what is it, it how what is the structure of the story
2: well, that's tough to gauge, too, because, I mean, in a way, I, I even thought of, like, um, you know, Holy Motors, too, because, like, the way she's being digitized at one point reminded me of, you know, the, the commentary in that film. Uh, but, I mean, what happens after she, you know, becomes digitized because we flash forward 20 years later, um, and then we enter the animated world... The only arc I can sort of guess (laughs) on the first viewing, that because it gets really messy once it becomes animated, yet really hypnotic at the same time, is that she's worried about losing her, you know, actual real-life relationships, like with her son. I mean, she has a son and a daughter that she's separating from. There's like this, you know, uh, military movement against being digital, and... There's, the, there's a whole section where it kind of comments on totalitarianism. So, I mean, again, like, in terms of a plot, it's really hard to follow um, once we get into the animated world. And that's why I think I need to watch it again to sort of make sure I grasp everything that happens from point A to point B to point C. Um, but by the end of it, I thought it was just on the basis of originality and being, you know, provoked intellectually. I was like, yeah, I, I really thought this was a great movie, but I'm not sure if I can easily explain it or, you know, tell you this is exactly what it's trying to say at the same time. So, I mean, that's kind of why I want you to see it so we can have a dialogue about it because I think it's one of those movies that when you walk out of it you want to talk about it with people to see what their subjective interpretation of it is. Cool. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know what, you know, this director's got in store for him next, but uh, I was a fan of Waltz with Bashir, and this one is... Very very interesting. So
4: people. Who- uh, Wiki- Wikipedia informs you he's making an Anne Frank movie. Oh
3: wow, that's
4: cool. Yeah. I mean that'll be interesting.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: I wonder what kind of an Anne Frank movie. Unless it is just an adaptation of the Diary of Anne Frank, like, like the play.
4: I maybe I, I, it, it's not a very cinematic story, honestly. Maybe the mm-hmm. first half will be animated. Sure. Yeah, like until she has to like hide, and then it'll <laughs> the rest of it will be like in black and white or something. <laughs> like,
2: hey Patrick, it's your turn.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I watched the <laughs> I watched the first season of True Detective.
3: Um, oh, I
1: just finished that last night. That's all right. It's all right, huh? Yeah, it does. No, it's it's no, I'm I'm underselling it. It's very good, but it was way. It's really like people you know this was a phenomenon that everyone was talking about every episode, and were obsessed with, and it's really kind of dumb <laughs> like in a lot of parts like it's really silly um it basically is just seven the t v series like it really doesn't isn't much deeper than that um like I was really interested in the first couple episodes because I thought maybe the you know the name of true detective would imply like oh, this would actually be an ex- an actual, like, exploration of sort of existential dread or whatever, you know, given Matthew McConaughey's character or whatever. But that is just sort of an interesting character trait for that character to have. It doesn't really... Like, it's mostly just kind of seven. You know? Like, it's it's just uh, a thriller with kind of creepy, edgy elements and work that goes into darker places than the average thriller. But it doesn't... Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm a little disappointed because there's a lot about it that's really, really good uh, mm-hmm. that is, like, just the the character-driven stuff. You know, like, the stuff where about what being a homicide detective has done to his family and, you know, that the problem that, you know, this is something actually a lot of homicide detectives have, which is just the idea of keeping a marriage and the idea of keeping a normal home life. And it's the sort of thing that – it's a job – that in society someone has to have, but there is really no good way to have that job to deal with just looking at murder scenes every day. Yeah. Um, and just to see the most horrific things and to deal with it. And I thought that's what the show was gonna be about, because the first couple episodes really focus on, you know, Woody Harrelson's home life and stuff. And then it kinda doesn't. Like kinda just goes off into breaking bad territory where it's just more traditional action crime thriller stuff. And it goes into, again, seven territory where it's just creepy cult stuff that really doesn't make any sense. You know, like it, and it's, it's just, it almost feels like a cop out to me because there's so much of it that is so strong and so mature and so interesting that when it gets to like, Oh my God, those two creepy people are having are fucking in a creepy, decrepit house full of shit, and there's porcelain dolls everywhere. Isn't that creepy? Like, it's it's annoying. It's, like, kind of irritating. I'm sure if we lived together, that's what people would be saying. Right, but, I mean, my porcelain dolls like to watch, so it's, you know, it okay. works out. Um, but uh, I, I, I will agree
2: that it was kind of a letdown. I mean... Every, there's so many things that are strong about it that I kind of over. Like, again, I just sort of focus on that to where I'm like, uh, ah, okay. So it wasn't like the strongest conclusion, and you know, it basically just dived down to you know, a one you know, a serial killer, which we've seen a million times in countless movies and TV shows, and I was definitely like surprised that it wasn't, I don't know, more shocking at the end than it was like. I, I really lo- I love the interpersonal exchanges. I love the chemistry yeah. between the two of those guys. Oh, I think that stuff is phenomenal.
1: On a scene to scene basis it's great. For sure. Like yeah. just individual like lines of dialogue and moments and everything oh, God, is played yeah. really well. It's just like as a whole, it was kinda of disappointing. 'Cause Because I want it to be a different thing. And then it that it ended up not that it sort of teased that it might be and then it ended up not being I don't know. Yeah,
2: I mean, people were thinking like, oh my god, like, the, the theories were getting you know, Lost-esque with like, is it a supernatural thing? What's this? What's with the uh, uh the Yellow Man or whatever it was? The <laughs> Yellow <laughs> King. Yeah, the Yellow King and oh man, like, people were just like going Oh like, just, the theories floating around were insane and then by the end it was like, oh, it was just, you know, this crazy serial killer and a cult and how many times have we seen that before? Uh, and even just you know the the confrontation wasn't like nail biting. I mean, it was certainly no. It was suspenseful, but it, not just to the point of the, the 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 bar was raised pretty high throughout that show in terms of like, what's it going to deliver?
1: It and- is. It, it was weird that like the big moment of that whole season, uh, the big like jaw dropping moment is that one crazy tracking shot. Where which is where he's cool. you know he's running through the housing project and stuff and he's um and like it's amazing but actually narratively and thematically like that's not an important scene like it was a cool yeah. it was a cool moment but that's actually it's not as if like that tracking shot was like well that's because that's the most that's the Rosetta Stone for the whole series it it was just a cool thing to happen in that episode. And it's mm-hmm. kind of a yeah, it's kind of disappointing. Um, you know, and just like even in I thought it was gonna be cool, I was like, oh, it starts off like it's gonna be a supernatural like it starts off like the X Files. It starts yeah, off that's what I thought. like I watched it because I was watching the X Files on Netflix and then and then my internet stopped working, so I was like, well, I have this, I have True Detective, I should watch this. So like and it starts off like, you know, they're not getting along, and one's this, one's that, and they couldn't be more Incompatible, but it turns out they work well together. Like it's, it has kind of an X Files vibe to it, and the cult thing I was enjoying, and then once it started subverting that by, Im- you know, Im- implying that it was more of a uh, uh, institutional sort of conspiracy, a cover up, and it, it was about the systematic uh, sort of abuse or you know, uh, this sort of systematic crime. Like it started getting more interesting. It's like, oh, that's in- it's so it isn't about a cult. It's about this other thing and it's about how the real scary things in life are the fact that this can go on and it's not about this implied supernatural thing but then when you get to the end like it's just as if they it's they do nothing to subvert the fact that he's like a creepy supernatural killer like even his ability to throw a claw hammer into someone's chest is just like well he's a superhero (laughs) like he has his superhuman strength he's supernatural and um uh, I guess I guess we should put a spoiler alert, but it's but it, it's one of those things where it doesn't really commit to that, and it's I don't know, like there's a lot that's good about it, and I'm excited about the second season because it's well directed, it's well written, it's well acted, and so a second season about something completely different, as long as it maintains the same level of quality of writing, acting, and directing, I'll be into it. But it's certainly not, you know, I it certainly doesn't match the some of the greatest television I've ever seen. You know, sort of talk that uh, that was hovering around earlier this year when the show was airing.
2: Yeah, focusing on its strengths, I mean, particularly the performances and, I mean, just the sense of mystery throughout. There's incredible, you know, sequences full of tension. And, I mean, it was a surprising show. Like, you know, I wasn't, I was like, oh, they're jumping forward in time. And, yeah, you know, the...
1: I, I was. I think like, this taken is aback. this is definitely probably a show that had I caught it week to week, um, yeah, and just had that whole week to let the unanswered questions linger. Like it would probably work better. Um, but knowing that within the course of four days I would be able to finish the show, like that's less of a that's less of a. a less of an artistic priority you know like it's uh it it that those parts the evocative nature of how every episode ends it it's not like breaking bad where like the first couple seasons every episode ended on a cliffhanger where you're like oh my god how are they gonna get out of this it's not that much of a cliffhanger but it is every episode ends on a moment that sort of uh alters the way you think Mm -hmm. about what happened that episode and it's right. and that's a great technique for a show that's airing week to week and yet people talking about that show week to week and and that's that's something I just didn't experience watching it all like this um I'll definitely admit um i mean I don't have h b o so I don't have an opportunity to uh i have to buy them all when they come out <laughs> so you know like i I don't have an opportunity to uh watch it that way um but
2: I would like you to, uh, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but I'd love to get your take on Top of the Lake.
1: Yeah, no, uh, I wanted to see that, too, especially once I heard that uh, she would be in uh, the second season of uh, True Detective. Yes. I was like, oh, I should watch this other Elizabeth Moss detective show that is uh, that has a dark tone. I mean, to be fair, it's a British show, so of course it has a dark tone. Have you ever watched any other British, uh, <laughs> like, procedurals? Mm-hmm.
2: I've I've watched a pilot for one that's actually being remade and I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head,
1: but yeah. I uh, yeah, I get pretty gruesome. I I started watching the, the Gillian Anderson one. I can't remember the name oh, of it. Oh
2: yeah. And then I, I think I, Top of the Lake is I think Top of the Lake is Australian because it's Jim oh, Campion. It, oh is it?
1: Yeah. Right, I mean, I, yeah. I thought it was uh BBC. Um I know Jim Campion is um, Australian, but I think huh.
2: I think yeah, I think well, that's where it takes place, so
1: Let's, I don't
2: know. If right. that, yeah, I, I really think you'd like that, and you should. It was a. It was a BBC.
1: Se- Top of the Lake was a BBC series.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: BBC Two. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it takes place in Australia, but it was a. Uh, it was a series that aired on first aired on the BBC. But anyway, so like that Gillian Anderson show is super creepy and oppressive and dark. And then you go nice. and then there's this. Yeah, there's this moment where I was watching a lot of uh, pilots on Netflix like just trying to figure out what the next series I would watch was. And there was this BBC show that was like these housewives and now that world and when world war two was going on, they, you know, they were cracking codes and they were a ragtag group of, of code breaking uh, crime solvers. yeah, that's a PBS show. Um, and then, (laughs) so like that, so that, and it's, so it's a show about like this kind of quirky group of girls and, you know, like, their husbands don't appreciate them, but they're actually super capable, and they're going to solve the ring of the serial killer. And then once you get into it, it's like, oh my god, the bodies—they were raped. They were raped after they were killed. He's a necrophiliac. <laughs> like, oh. like it gets so fucking crazy so quickly. That's that's just something I associate with the BBC. Like, I I have to admit, one of the reasons I haven't watched Top of the Lake is I'm just I just assume that some horrific torture rape murder happens every episode. <laughs> mm,
2: not every episode.
1: No. No. Occasionally. Um, Speaking of the BBC, it, I also watched uh the the trip to Italy, the Steve Coogan Rob Brydon sequel to when Oh, the trip. I like the trip. Yeah, I watched the series The Trip to Italy, um, mm-hmm. which is which like so The Trip is a movie with uh, you know, uh Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon and they it was edited from a TV show, um, and you know, and it played in theaters and stuff. And so, the sequel to this movie was also edited from a second season of that TV show. And I watched the second season, so I haven't seen the sh- the movie itself, but I saw the season. Um, and it's more, it's like a lot of what makes the trip good is in a trip to Italy. But sort of the more the more dramatic character this time is Rob Bryden. Like he's the one with the big. Uh, sort of character arc um mm. and he is just not as good a character to have that kind of arc like okay. all that stuff in the original trip that was kind of the weak parts of the trip i feel yeah yeah i would agree because mm-hmm. it's just it's really number one it's inconsequential to what the main pleasures of the movie are and number two it's just you know it's not going to get solved while they're on the trip <laughs> you know like steve coogan is like having trouble with his girlfriend <laughs> and he doesn't know what he's going to do it's, it's not like it's sort of just an ambiguous problem that's out there. It's not something that's going to be worked over the course of the film. So, you don't have a super high investment in it. And also it's fictional, so. But uh Trip to Italy, it's on Rob Brydon and again, he's he's honestly he's more of a Robin Williams character where he's just constantly riffing and doing voices and being silly and stuff and it's it just doesn't work out as well because he's not he's not as flawed a character like Coogan Mm -hmm. Coogan's like at this point in Tristram Shandy, the trip and now trip to Italy. Like Steve Coogan has created this sort of fictionalized Steve Coogan character. And who knows? It could be, this is just how he is in real life. But basically the character is just this sort of, uh, narcissistic self-involved self-aggrandizing kind of feels very important. Kind of an Oliver Stone type, if you will. Um, Oh, nice. Uh, and, you know, and his relationship with Rob Brydon is that he feels great satisfaction in being more famous than Rob Brydon. Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> – and and lets Rob Brydon know that like kiddingly and then not so kiddingly. Um, and the, the way they shift between that and the way they sort of go between playing and actually like sort of taking shots at each other um is is always fun to watch and that's definitely in trip to Italy so it's a it's fun to watch but um Rob Brydon his character is just he's a goofy guy and he likes to go for easy jokes and he likes to go for impressions and stuff and he's not pretentious at all he just likes to make people laugh you know and it's you throw in like a question of oh he's getting older and his marriage isn't what it used to be or whatever, but it's it's just not as compelling a character to have a, a drama over. Um, so I wouldn't say it's as good as The Trip, but uh, it is – if you like The Trip, I'd definitely say that The Trip to Italy is worth seeing. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Did it make you hungry? Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I was so – like, yeah. Every – that's the other thing about this is every meal they have is the most extravagant thing ever. That's actually so I went back and before I watched Trip to Italy, I rewatched the trip on Netflix. And one of the, and before I just liked that movie because of all the moments where they're improvising and they're doing impressions and they're joking and they're riffing off of each other the way that, you know, comedians do. Um like I just like that dynamic. Um and I like that that dynamic. Like that's a dynamic you know, comedy in Hollywood comedies are very improvisational these days. But the dynamic is usually of just like uh, people going back and forth, insulting each other. Like the sort of like the ground zero of modern improvisational uh, cinematic comedy is like the you know how I know you're gay scene. In, you know, in Forty Year Old Virgin. You know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. And that, that's a funny scene. I like that scene a lot. But like it, it the nice thing about the trip is it has a different vibe because it's just two people who are trying to be adults and they have a high, more sophisticated sort of frame of reference for the, for things. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, they have their very specific chemistry. It's really good. Um, you should check out Alan Partridge. I enjoyed that. Yeah. See, that was the thing. Like I, I didn't want to like, this didn't make me want to watch Alan Partridge cause Alan Partridge is a Steve Coogan doing a character. And so far, all the times I've really... he's still playing Steve Coogan. He's still playing that fictionalized narcissist. No, he's really. doing a completely different character. He's doing Alan Partridge. Like, that's a different character. It's a... Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, I still see his persona just, like, coming through. I mean, maybe it's more stylized and exaggerated. Yeah,
1: I've seen clips of it. It's broader. And what I like about it yeah. is how... What I like about these Winterbottom... Because all these were... You know the trip, trip to Italy, and Tristram Shandy. These were all directed by Michael Winterbottom. What I like about these Michael Winterbottom movies is that they're not broad. You know, Mm -hmm. they're very specific. They're very. It's clear that they're improvised. It's there's documentary elements in these movies. Like in the trip, you just see footage of the kitchen when they're making the food, and it's just you know that that was just Michael Winterbottom went to this restaurant and shot it. There's no actors there. You know, and whereas
2: like Alan Partridge is more of like a David Wayne sort of sensibility. Where it's 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 broad, it's you know it it goes for some you know ridiculous references and funny jokes and I don't know every now and then that works for me and like I I even I even like parts of Hamlet too. That's how much I love Steve Coogan.
1: Oh, I don't like um, Hamlet too at all. That's the other yeah. thing is anything where Steve Coogan <laughs> isn't being like I think he's pretty funny in uh, Tropic Thunder, but I don't like that movie very much. But I think he's yeah, I all right. Either I I think he's all right in it, but um hamlet 2 i thought was just the worst i thought that was a really bad movie
4: <laughs> that movie's not uh, good
1: when he when he's drunk on
2: roller skates going to the liquor store i was cracking up
1: uh, but uh so the uh, so yeah, I'm an easy laugh sometimes so the thing about watching the trip is um the first movie i should say because the second the second series is not as it's not as focused on narcissism because it's because the drama all comes from Rob Brydon's character, not from Steve Coogan, and it seems like the character Steve Coogan has evolved since the trip. Um, and well, it's, that's good. it seems like it's and if the he if they keep making these movies like every four years or so, you know the trip was 2010. This is a 2014. Like if they just keep doing this like a before series, it'd be really interesting. Um, but at any rate, in the first movie, something I found that was really interesting was that it was like. Um, it was – it's almost like all of this is wasted on them because Steve Coogan is so obsessed with his career and he's so obsessed with being well-respected and he's so obsessed with not just being a mere comedian like Rob Bryden is. He needs to be something grand or something better and like – you. and he can't get reception anywhere when they're in North England. So you see him in these like beautiful vistas and he's out in these fields and there's just – the most gorgeous scenery all around him and he's on the phone with his agent in America like yelling about a an HBO pilot or something like that like mm-hmm. like all that stuff that is interesting it's a really good subtext the idea that yeah. it's just like all of this uh, extravagance is wasted on the wealthy
2: like, you know like it's this it's yeah. it's uh, and that so is so focused on yourself you don't see the outside world right
1: and like you know these people don't deserve deserve what they have which is uh, it, it's sort of an interesting uh, subtext to it; it's not really ever spoken because the characters themselves don't realize it. Um, but um, so that's sort of interesting. More interesting thing: I kind of like the trip more than I did the last time I saw it, um, and, and I liked it the last time I saw it, but I like it even more now. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Trip to Italy's all right. Uh, True Detective is really good, but it's not amazing. Uh,
4: uh, I actually have a question about True Detective. Sure. Uh, um, what, did it feel like a slog to go watch like 10 episodes of True Detective? No. Or was it like – it did not? Okay.
1: well, that's the, a good pace. The, well, the, the interesting thing about True Detective – here's the other really good thing about True Detective. True Detective does the thing, at least uh, early on, it does the thing that um, uh, the Office and Parks and Recreation do where it sort of uses a interview framing device – um to, uh, to tell the story, yeah. <laughs> but the thing that separates True Detective from those two shows is those two shows don't give a fuck about those framing devices. Those are just shorthand. That's just a way for the office to have someone speak to, or you know, modern family for that matter, like just have someone speak the themes of the episode to the camera. And if you think about it realistically, you're like, wait a second. How come no one on The Office has ever been recognized in all the times they're in public? They've been on the show, apparently. Or either that or the documentary crew has been filming for a film for the past eight years or whatever. Like, if you start to think about the logistics of whatever The Office – like, if you start to think about the logistics of filming The Office, um, everything breaks down. Whereas True Detective, Mm -hmm. the framing device starts to get really interesting and – Things are said and things are not said in the interview segments that, and it creates a really interesting um, sort of juxtaposition. And it jumps in time, uh, in really, in ways that could not happen in a traditional TV show. It could only happen in a show that is only going to be eight episodes long, and that's it. And the next season's not going to follow these characters, you know. Um, so uh, it's a really. So it doesn't get tedious at all. It's a really well-told no. story. Okay, that's, that's good then. What, what made you fear that it would get tedious? Oh,
4: I mean, it was actually last summer for Big Kahuna Burger. I did a episode because Umar really wanted to do a Game of Thrones episode and I never watched Game of Thrones. So I had to sit down and watch two seasons of Game of Thrones and – it felt like a slog to sit through 20 hours of Game of Thrones, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I,
1: I, I've never that... seen Game of Thrones. I saw the first episode, and I didn't
4: understand a single word of it, so I just quit.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: me too. That's why I never bothered.
4: Yeah, but, Game uh... of, The first episode of Game of Thrones is kind of the litmus test with that show. If you can get through that first episode and feel like you should watch a second, you, that show is for you. If you don't, then that show is not for you. That's basically how I would argue that. Oof.
1: Well...
2: I think we're ready to move on now. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Y- you know what we're going to talk about? The director of the episode
0: of Stone. You're pedantic that's for sure. Your movies receive praise. You're popular but it's not for show That public taste won't change And though you won the awards And though your film's made for back Oliver Stone is not the 90s Where the cynical as you are the choir, and maybe you just made us all tired. Leverstone. you made a ton of films, and star Tom Sizemore, and John T. McGinley, we want you spread a little more thinly. Leverstone. you went to NYU, after leaving Vietnam, but you never left Vietnam, we like our movies just a little more calm. Leverstone. you made some masterpieces. Punch your penis
1: over the head With another antidesis And sometimes
0: it's like you think you're Jesus Avenge oh. me
3: <laughs> um.
1: Anyway, Oliver Stone <laughs> Who's that? Uh That's a guy who directed a bunch of films uh, Throughout the 80s, 90s And rumor has it he's still directing movies Though post 90s it's a little harder to remember Mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of conflicted about Oliver Stone.
2: You know, sometimes within the the movie, there are things I like, there are things I hate, but I admire his tenacity. I gotta say, I, I mean, he 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 has a statement and he wants to get it out there, push it right in your face, and he doesn't care what you think. Yeah, I will say I that. Think I, I, will say <laughs> I think he'd make a better. I think he'd make a better political science professor than filmmaker.
1: <laughs> I, yeah, he probably, he'd make a great political science. He would get he would get everyone in his class really involved and oh yeah. up and stuff but yeah um, the thing about Oliver Stone yeah I will say is it, it this shouldn't be uh, this should just be a given this shouldn't be a um, you know it, this shouldn't be a, a, a check mark in his in his column but like he does seem to actually give a shit about yeah. everything he's talking he's, about like you could yeah. you could go to like a Robert Redford movie. And whatever issues Robert Redford is tackling, it's kind of just, you know, Robert Redford taking a token stand against a thing so he can be nominated for Academy Awards. Like, it's kind of a circle jerk. You know, he... It, 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 Oliver Stone is not part of the uh, the uh, uh, liberal elite. <laughs> you know, like, he, he kind of goes Ooh. his own fucking weird directions. Um, and he cares dramatic, You know, he cares drastically about them. He... he uh, you get, you definitely get the idea that his, he sees his mission in life is to shine light on things, and you know sometimes he's more successful than others, and but the urgency to shine the light is always there.
2: Yeah, that's kind of what I like, um, but I mean, I've always said in the past I don't like, I, I don't like you know, messages being preached on a pulpit right to me. No. And he, he, he does that fairly consistently. I mean, I appreciate him bringing attention to political unrest and certain, you know, conflicts within our nation's history and stuff. And there, I mean, I will I will say that, uh, you know, his early work is a lot more streamlined and not, uh, maybe conventional, but a little
4: disciplined. Too. Dis- I disciplined, I think, is the key yeah, word. That's, that's yeah. the perfect term there. I mean, for me, when I watch Oliver Stone movies, especially the first kind of three, the first three big ones they did, Salvador Platoon and Talk Radio, I was more excited about what he didn't do than what he actually did do in the movie, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. that he didn't go crazy and decide to shoot it, as Patrick said, at once in every format in every everything in every format possible that he decided to kind of stick to one format and one editing Mm -hmm. structure i like that a lot in the first three movies he did and then as he goes along in his movie career he kind of goes away from that um more than anything it's funny that i'm actually on this oliver stone podcast because uh on my podcast the genre conversation um my co-host and I, Michael Morris, we often get into a argument once in a while about obvious versus subtle. And Oliver Stone is kind of the argument against why you don't – like is the argument for why you don't make things too obvious, if that makes sense. Because when you do, it has a tendency to get really obnoxious. And that's kind of where I think Oliver Stone has his downfall is that he gets super obnoxious.
2: Yeah, I will definitely agree with that. I think uh, Pauline Kale said, uh, Oliver Stone directs as if someone had put a gun to the back of his head. And, like, he, he sort of just, you know, especially later on, kind of just. It's all excess. And I realized, like, you know, even in something like Platoon or Born on the Fourth of July, there's definitely sentimentality and, you know, the, the score being raised and, and things that. You know, didn't bug me as much when I saw them as a kid, but now I, I'm just kind of like, oh man, this is just a, such an easy way to g- get an emotion out of somebody watching a movie. And you know, I mean, I I've, I actually loved Platoon when I was a kid because it was my first exposure to Vietnam, and you know, seeing it at a young age, at a very impressionable age, it it had a huge effect on me. And you know, seeing Willem Dafoe's character like, you know, in that pose, even, even now, I'm like, I'm torn between, like, thinking, God, that is just so, you know, ridiculously over the top, but as a kid, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms, and, you know, I, I think he's the most interesting part of that movie, whereas it gets, I think the thing I've noticed in a lot of Oliver Stone movies is that, like, his his thematic presentation of history... Claims like there is this one truth that is, you know, not uh, malleable. It's 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 just it is what it is. There is very rarely a gray area, and even in something like Platoon, now all I see is like, oh, it's you know the good soldier and the bad soldier, and the naive you know Charlie Sheen coming in and having to deal with both sides, and like I can I actually think Charlie Sheen is bad in Platoon. I am more annoyed by the score now because it's like just oh how convenient and the voiceover is terrible I mean there's just things in that movie now that is like I can't believe you know this won all these awards and got all this acclaim because it just pulls the puppet strings throughout and there are a lot of instances throughout Oliver Stone's career where that becomes very apparent whereas like you know it's something like Born the Fourth of July at least it's anchored by Tom Cruise giving it his all that I'm more forgiving with that
1: I love Born in the 4th, of Platoon, Platoon is, okay, so here's the thing, about, the thing about Platoon is, it's inherently valuable, because Oliver Stone was the first, uh, Vietnam veteran to make a Vietnam movie. True. And like, that's just, yeah, you should have the people, you know, you should have, Spike Lee should be the one to make a Malcolm X movie, you know, and you mm-hmm. should have, and a Vietnam veteran should be the one to make a Vietnam movie, you know, in an ideal world, and doesn't, Certainly doesn't always work out like that, and it often doesn't. But ideally, you want uh, to hear the story from people who were there and people whose story it is. And like to that extent, apparently, you know, Platoon was the first sort of Vietnam movie that the minutia of Vietnam, like just waking up on watch and you just have bugs all over you, and like just digging out latrines and like that kind of stuff. Or just you know, yeah, being out and and having to stay up and seeing them coming and not knowing they're coming and like that, all that stuff. Apparently, it got really it got what, right more than sure. There are moments, other ones. definitely like that. Um, I mean that that is what I'm told. I don't. I wasn't in Vietnam. Shockingly enough, so I couldn't tell you if that is true. But like, so in that mo- way, it's a valuable movie just to exist. But um yeah, like it's it's kind of funny. It's, you know, Francis Ford Coppola never went to Vietnam. Francis Ford Coppola never went to war. Um and yet if you wanted a uh, the actual uh, a movie that really gets a pos- across sort of the fog of war and the confusion of war and you and sort of the the moral bankruptcy, it yeah. It's I think it's a good example of just how sometimes being direct isn 't always the best route like sometimes uh being surreal is the best route sometimes heightening things sometimes you can get a message across better if it isn't um if it if you go about it in a strange way sometimes the best movie about fear of nuclear war isn 't a movie in which people are afraid nukes are going to be sent from Cuba it 's a movie in which giant you know killer ants are devouring people. <laughs> you know, like like sometimes that roundabout sort of uh, heightened way is a better way to tackle a subject and I think platoon all of the things that made it unique at the time, all of the well-observed, you know, details and stuff have been stripped and now it's just any Vietnam movie whether it's fucking Forrest Gump or what. Any scenes in Vietnam are going to take from platoon and when you watch it uh, after having seen those movies as I'm sure me and Thomas have uh, yeah. are coming to platoon after having seen other cinematic representations of Vietnam it just comes across as kind of like a a, a spongy kind of grey lump of cliches um, like the the thing that, there's this thing about uh, Oliver Stone where he will he's sort of self-satisfied in a way that he will say um like commonly used uh, axioms, and but say them as if he invented them. So, like, there's a moment in Platoon where um, a character is like, "Hey, well, you know what, Grunt? Uh, excuses are like assholes." And obviously, it goes, they, "They everyone has them, and they all stink." But like, in it, it just pauses three seconds, like the like as if the audience is sitting on, like, "What excuses are like assholes? What what does that mean? Excuses are like assholes. That's so, so straight. And then he goes everybody has one. And then there's another pause. He goes, and they all stink. Like he says these like horrific cliches as if no one's ever said them. And this is like the dynamite line. Like that's the one that everyone's going to take home with them. And yeah, the dialogue is pretty bad throughout. I mean, throughout his career, the dialogue is pretty bad. Uh, It's only, and it's, and again, platoon, I think the problem is Oliver Stone the kinds of stories he tells, they often aren't about characters that are no. trying to achieve, like, a very specific thing. Like, he, he doesn't tell a traditional stories. He, you know, like, Nixon isn't a traditional story. Nixon goes all over the place. So it lives and dies on a scene-to-scene basis, you know? Like, mm-hmm. you go JFK. back.
3: And,
1: yeah, you, well, you know, you watch JFK. They're trying to achieve a very specific thing, so the dialogue is functional, you know? The dialogue is... yeah is well oh, I just found this information. I'm gonna relay it to you and you this information and you can do it tie it to this and now the audience knows and this is how we're, this is what we're trying to get out of this guy and then we go interview this guy and then this is how he evades us and we don't get what we wanted out of him. And like on a, it just works so much better because he isn't because wor- he's just worried about like how do you make this story work? Whereas mm-hmm. like Platoon, there's just that horrible scene. Where Charlie Sheen is just like digging out the latrines, and he's like, "I signed up because I don't think the black man should have to fight all the wars." And it's like, "Well, that's how the black man goes." And then, and uh, uh, Keith David just has that long speech, and it's just, just like, "Oh yeah, no, that's probably what happened to Vietnam is just like long, long didactic speeches about race relations, <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> at all times." Like the the thing about thing about that sort of thing is. It just comes across as, um, it doesn't come disingenuous. Across well, yeah, it comes across as disingenuous because it's not the kind of conversations people actually have. It's the kind of things right. that people wish they said when they go back and look at a moment in their lives, you know. Mm-hmm. And when you put that kind of idealized thing in a movie, where you know people. I mean, if it again, if it's if it's fucking natural born killers, all bets are off because you're not looking at anyone as anything other than a cartoon. But like if you're trying to actually view these people as human beings who are stuck in this situation, like the second that they start becoming the writer's mouthpiece, um you know, it's just it's such a bummer because you can't it just breaks the suspension of disbelief. Like, oh, I was invested in this character and their story and where they were, and I was there with them because. You know that's what a movie is, and now I don't have that suspension of disbelief anymore because now I know that it's actually the only reason they actually exist is because this guy wanted to tell me something. Um,
2: yeah, well, that's exactly it, and you know the the, I, the the horrible like way the movie this ends with the voiceover like we weren't fighting them, we were fighting ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh my god, that's horrible. And this like, I mean, I understand why. Like you said, there's specific details, and I even think, you know, Willem Dafoe is great, as usual, like, I, I, but I mean, again, like, just sort of lumping characters into, you know, okay, Willem Dafoe's the loving hippie who wants to smoke pot and, you know, help help human beings all around, while Tom Berenger is just, you know, a psychotic asshole who wants to kill everybody, and, I mean, there's very little room to view these people as fully dimensional characters and that's kind of something I've noticed throughout his career, whereas like, I think he he definitely it's interesting, like, with especially with JFK and Nixon, where he tries to look at things from all angles, all sides, and you know, even with Nixon, have sympathy which is something people were used to like trying to look at him as a human being and that's a movie that I went back and found a lot to appreciate about, and even the you know, the the, the flashiness the over-editing, sort of that's the thing I also love about JFK, too, is like it sort of complements the rhythm of the movie. It complements the dialogue, the, the, the immediacy of what's taking place and how people are getting really impassioned about learning the mystery and stuff.
1: Well, that, that's so. certainly true for JFK. I can't agree with you on, on Nixon. Um, it, doesn't really, it, it doesn't really fit the movie on Nixon. And Nixon is just sort of, I'm glad that stuff exists because otherwise it would be a pretty traditional biopic. But yeah. but it doesn't really fit, honestly. Like, but JFK JFK is all about information. Like JFK, mm-hmm. real. Like, I know Oliver Stone cared passionately about the assassination of JFK, and he wanted the American people to see like all of these um, inconsistencies in the reports on the assassination of JFK, and that was passionate to him. But the meta text of that movie is just about like how like why people get find conspiracy theories compelling. Like, the thing about that movie is that movie could be completely fictional and it would still be fascinating because it's all about this rush of information. It's about connecting the dots. And every every one of those scenes where they're all at the table and they're all, like, putting together all the evidence they've found and it keeps cutting, like, archival footage and then mock archival footage, you know, the stuff that looks convincing because (laughs) Gary Oldman somehow looks a lot like...
3: (laughs) I you know.
1: know the <laughs> That's a really great that, uh, that just happened. But like and you know, there's this and that, and then it'll cut to an interview and he's like it, you're trying to keep up and it's and it's just a rush. I mean
2: Yeah, it's a breathless experience. It's, like, I just, it's a
1: game that uh you know David Fincher co-opted in Zodiac, and in Exactly in yeah. a lot of ways Zodiac is like a more sophisticated version of that because it has just better characters and and it has sort of a, a sharper script and it's with a lot of really great dialogue. Um, but just as far as pure... Uh, uh, just pure exposition, like JFK is a thrill. And so that sort of hyperactive, multi-format thing, its the it, it feels like you're going through photographs and then you're going through documents and then you're listening to someone tell you. You're getting all these different media... And you know, and JFK worked. Whereas Nixon Nixon just felt like, well, it worked for JFK. I mean yeah. regardless of going the way back that to the well JFK kinda. is not a JFK biopic. JFK is not a movie about John F. Kennedy. J F K is a mm-hmm. movie about uh, the cover up of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. You don't really learn anything about John F. Kennedy other than like that he may have been, been going to yeah. end Vietnam. <laughs> right. So in Nixon it's it's interesting because a it's just it's a traditional kind of story but told in a really untraditional way and yeah with a, with a great cast and and it really really like
2: i mean I, I don't know i mean maybe it's just when i first you know walked in thinking oh my god it's a 3 hour movie about nixon and you know, Anthony Hopkins, really? Like I just because I've I've never been a fan of him. I always thought like, you know, he hams it up all the
1: time and I I was really like impressed. You're wrong th- by th- you're th- wrong about that, by the way. You're just flat out Anthony Hopkins is great. I mean Anthony Hopkins is the Anthony Hopkins, Lion in the Winter? Are you kidding me? Anthony Hopkins. Thumbs up.
2: Oh down. yeah, you've told we've we had that conversation before. I still need to see that. So Anthony Hopkins is good in
4: Nixon then?
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, okay. the thing Very about, good. The thing about him in Nixon is he's like uh, Denzel Washington in Malcolm X, where if you judge it on an impression of the famous person they're depicting, it's not good. Like, right. Malcolm X actually didn't really sound all that much like Denzel Washington does in Malcolm X. But Denzel Washington creates a character that gives you the idea of who Malcolm X is. And the same way, um, if you're looking at it like this guy doesn't look like Nixon, this guy doesn't sound exactly like Nixon. Like, this is a a weird Nixon impression. Like, if you're judging it purely on those standards, it's not good. But Anthony Hopkins does the thing that actually a lot of biopics don't do that well, you know, uh, is he goes beyond impression and he just creates a character. And you see him in his highs, you see him in his lows, and you see his vulnerabilities and his fears, and you're with him emotionally. And it's not about – it's not about Jamie Foxx getting – the voice and look of Ray Charles down so much that you think that you're looking at Ray Charles. It's about following a character in a story. right?
4: Um, So he is, Anthony Hopkins is very good at Nixon. Um, I mean, I only asked because um, that was one of the things I really did notice with stone is that his, he gets, and this kind of actually is a perfect amalgam amalgamation. I guess is kind of the word I'm using there of stone's career is that it's either really good or it's really bad. If that makes sense. Like, sure jfk the accent that costner uses is kind of so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so like, that's what he's kind of known weirdly for. bad like there is a scene where yeah. i'm pretty sure costner says he would have he would have about as much use for russian as a cat would have for pajamas or something like that yeah. and it sounds just awful. <laughs> like <Yeah>. awful <laughs> And at the same time like in born on the fourth of july tom cruise is amazing Right? Like, his whole... Phenomenal. Like, he's phenomenal. I, I,
3: I, I, he, I was he's the only reason
4: t- I can finish that movie. And I, I think that it's so kind of weird that he has this... Like, he, there's no middle ground, almost. I, there's something... Okay, so, again, looking back in
1: retrospect, it, it, can, it can be weird. But the other thing about movies you always have to think about is just, like... No, they had to fight to get this movie made. Any movie that isn't fucking trying to be the last big movie that happened. So like right now any movie that's not a big superhero movie or any movie or back then like any movie that isn't Dances with Wolves or I don't know whatever the big movies. Forrest Gump. Uh Forrest Gump, you know, like that that's that was that came after JFK, but like like that sort of thing like you have to fight to get made. And JFK before that movie even came out, like mainstream publications were Absolutely, just shaming it. They're like, we read the script and it's horrible and I can't believe he's doing this. He's shaming his country. Like, it's weird to think about now just because in a post-JFK world everyone accepts that <laughs> JFK wasn't killed by Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh-huh. But, like, at the time he was actually pushing the envelope. I mean, he he wasn't introducing new ideas. You watch the beginning of JFK, it's based on a couple of books. Like, you watch Annie Hall and Woody Allen Interrupts joke, sex yeah. to, uh, to have his theory about the assassination of JFK It wasn't like uh, Oliver Stone invented the conspiracy um, But he definitely It became a huge movie He brought it to the mainstream And it just became uh, Common knowledge uh, mm-hmm. Or it just accepted Sort of common knowledge And the thing about like JFK is Kevin Costner was like the biggest movie star At the time in the late '80s, early '90s, like he was the star, and I kind of feel like Oliver Stone had to get made. Like, I would, I would believe it if, if just Oliver Stone needed Kevin Costner to be in that movie in order to sell it at all. Sure, and that makes sense. And like, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm being forgiving because I like JFK a lot, and because, <laughs> because I want to go to bed to it. But no, JF- Kevin Costner's not great in it, and unfortunately, Oliver Stone goes into. His family life at parts where it's just like,
3: ah,
2: no one really yeah, take the kids
1: and leave, yeah. <laughs>
2: like, right. That's that's the one thing I noticed too. Rewatching, I was like, nah, that's not necessary. And he always he always kind of does that. Even like in talk radio, I've mentioned where th- there's no need for us to go back and learn about you know his marriage and how it failed, like that kind of stuff. It's it's not necessary. But that's just... just like the,
1: yeah, I, I think it's just... That's the kind of stuff that is in movies. And a lot of times... Yeah. Barring a super specific artistic vision... Like, you fall back on the things that are in movies. And it's like, well... You know, I should... Right now, I still don't know how this is affecting him as life. That's an important part of his story. And, you know, you, you look at something holistically... And you want to get as much of it as possible. But the thing... So... <laughs> The thing was, uh, the thing is funny is I was I was working the other day, um, and my coworker Tanisha had just seen the um, James Brown uh, biopic that came out recently. Oh, yeah, get on up, get on up. That's right. Okay, so she had just seen the James Brown biopic, and I had asked her how it was, and she goes, "You know, it's pretty good." She goes, "She goes, it made me want to do two things." She goes, "It made me want to, made me want to listen to James Brown music, and it made me want to beat women." <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was like, what are you talking about? But she and she was just talking about like he's like, every one of his wives wouldn't shut the fuck up. He was out there doing his thing and she and they were always getting in the way and like and like to an extent like that actually speaks to when you're looking at something as broad as I'm gonna tell the story of a human life. Um like Unless a, a sufficient amount of time is actually spent on James Brown's home life, the audience has no investment in him being a happy home life. They only have an investment in him right. being a musical genius. Like every part of a biopic is engineered to just be like, all right, and everything works to this thing. And then Jimi Hendrix played played Woodstock, and he set his guitar on fire, and like, and everything that isn't working towards the moment where Jimi Hendrix sets his guitar on fire, that's stuff that's in the way, and. Mm-hmm. It's funny. like It becomes white noise. Yeah, noise. and it, and, like, and, eh. anyone, and and it's just this thing that's like in real life, if you knew James Brown, you'd be like, you know, I just – I feel like this isn't going to work out for you. You should probably just like slow down a little bit on the crazy rock star stuff and just like settle down and find someone that's right for you and raise children and all the other traditional things that make for a fulfilling life. But that makes for a boring, boring movie. Yeah. So you have no investment in that happening and – and I think that's true of a lot of like movies, where without a, a lot of legwork being, uh, you know, dedicated to convincing you that that's what should happen. Like, I mean, half of Walk the Line is about the ref is about the romance between Johnny Cash and June Carter. Like, like that's what more- the movie is a, a romance about a famous country singer. You know, um, and and the same in JFK. Like, you really are given no reason to want Kevin Costner to have a happy home life because what you want to do is get to the truth you want to get more of that info you want to get more to the bottom of it oh my god the Cubans are involved and now the CIA is involved and who are those people who are on the train and you want to get more and more and it's that rush and then every time John Candy is so sweaty oh my god John Candy John Candy (laughs) John Candy's great in this but yeah, yeah and every time you get back to Sissy Spacek being like you weren't even listening to your kid. He was trying to tell you about his day, and you weren't even listening. It's like, who gives a fuck about his day? What, what, what could possibly <laughs> happen in that kid's day that was so important? That it was more important than the assassination of an American president. Like Right? It's, that, it's just that sort of thing where it's... Unfortunately, you're trying to make a story about a human, but you, what you're actually trying to do is make a movie about a conspiracy. But that, that's
2: not his, that is not his strength
3: really
1: and yeah there are people who could thread that needle and Oliver Stone can't really thread that needle but like Mm -hmm. in general it's just a thing that is difficult to pull off for any director to pull off which is uh, like I mean what like Goodfellas is kind of close because he dedicates enough time to Lorraine Bracco that like when you're watching Goodfellas that stuff with her and she when she's talking about like just being with all those other wives or when she's holding the gun to his face like you don't resent her. You still have enough mm-hmm. of an investment as her and a character. I mean, that's certainly not true of Casino. If you want to, you know, if you want to just talk about <laughs> Scorsese, like all all the Sharon Stone stuff is just like, oh, why are you bothering with her at all? She's the worst.
2: Um, well, I, I was I was surprised even in something like Born on the Fourth of July how the, uh, you know, the, the sexual repression of the mother with the the Playboy magazine is like completely you know uh, taken to an extreme during one of Tom Cruise's most incredibly well-acted moments ever with that really long drunken uh
1: confrontation with his parents. Oh, that's devastating.
2: That is. It is. I, oh god. Cuz it like, just goes I've on. forgotten like all about that. Too. It's the
1: kind of thing you expect in that movie is he hits rock bottom and then he finds his purpose, you know, like that's it's in Malcolm X, it's in so many movies. It's yeah he hits the bottom and, you, and you, so you expect it to happen but because you expect it to happen it's sort of a perfunctory thing so when that scene happens and it just keeps going on and on and it gets darker and nastier and keeps cutting deeper oh, yeah. and he's crying well, and he takes just, out his catheter
2: and oh, and oh my and just
3: god
1: te- tears are just flowing <laughs> through his eyes as he's talking about it. like the church condoned this and like just the betrayal and just everything coming out it's, it's devastating I mean, yeah. Tom Cruise is so good. Like cuz Tom Cruise was probably closer to the age he is at the beginning of the movie than the end. Um
2: Right. And he he was still in cocktail mode. I'm right. Like he was
1: still in like his early to mid 20s at in the late 80s and you know, but he really does play every age from 18 to, you know, from 18 to however old he is supposed to be, like 30s.
2: Um, Yeah, but again, like, it does get a little bogged down with, uh, you know, his time spent with Willem Dafoe and, like, just the transition from him becoming an activist. I didn't, I wasn't necessarily clear on that, like... uh, No,
1: there's no... (laughs) The worst, (laughs) like, I love, I love Born on the Fourth of July. The worst thing is that story structure where it's just like, there is just like, and then we were here. And then after that, I had written a book. (laughs) <laughs> like yep.
4: the first 45 minutes of born on the fourth of july were hard for me like oh, really i felt it was i felt it was kind of like it felt to me like one kind of america cliche after another like i'm, I'm disappointed he didn't have any apple pie in the first 35 minutes because sure i mean yeah, yeah and, it's it's definitely selling hard that uh he that, loves america
1: yeah he loves and, america and that he's a patriot but I think there is an energy to just that opening parade that I was just like, all right, I'm on board. You got me. Cause I- just the way the camera runs around and the kids are running under the, all the adults' legs and stuff and the idea – like the idea that all of that is just kind of periphery to the children and mm-hmm. – like there's – it isn't just iconic scenes of and here's the people waving and here's this scene of a flag waving and here's this scene of a little kid on a, his dad's shoulders and – Here's the scene of the sparklers and watching the 4th of July and then there's the person with the speech. Like it felt more real and it had kind of a, uh, an anxious energy to it that I really responded to um, that once he began to grow up and like – That's one of the funny things about 4th of July is it actually does sort of do a really good job in just the scenes that have nothing to do with the plot of the movie where it's just like – oh yeah it sucks you're working at a grocery store and you're 16 you want to take that girl to prom and <laughs> you're a stock boy and, <laughs> and, and like that scene he's like no nah, never mind no it's no big deal or like that you know fairly lengthy scene where he's in that wrestling match and he fails and um well like, the, that's scene an
4: important- the scene where the scene where he's um talking to the general and the general is like it didn't matter and he's like yeah it did matter he's like it didn't matter that that scene is great too
1: yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that, and that, that gets more into the actual plot of the movie. But, like, Oliver Stone generally isn't good at typical story beats. He only really cares about the message and everything else that gets in the way. Kind of just – you could tell he wasn't focusing as much. But for some reason, in Born on the Fourth of July, like, every part of that transition I, I was sold on. Um, there's something – there's also something about just – Oliver Stone's approach to all of these movies, like all of these movies, are the big kind of movies that did get nominated for Academy Awards, and you, the movies you kind of look at now and you take for granted because they're just like, yeah, of course, <laughs> you know, yeah. of course that fucking of of like of course, Born on the Fourth of July got nominated for a bunch of awards because it's an actor and he has to play a disabled person and it's about a big war, but it's safely it's enough time after Vietnam that it's not actually threatening. And all these people can pat themselves on the back for being anti-Vietnam fifteen years after the fact, um, and stuff like that. But like, there is a rudeness to it. Like, there's, there, like that movie's gross. Like, there's so much just catheter emptying and wounds and shit and rats, rats. And, yeah. Oh God, yeah, his stay in the hospital
2: just oh.
1: And there's God. and there's just a rudeness in general to Oliver Stone's movies that uh, he isn't he isn't he won't spare anyone the unpleasant details and it kind of gives those movies an energy. Like even something like platoon platoon is a little, is nastier. Like that, that scene in platoon where they're just fucking destroying that village is not, it's, it goes on again, way longer and gets way cuts way deeper than you would expect that kind of scene in that movie to go. Um, and yeah. he, he isn't polite and there, that impoliteness it certainly comes across as obnoxious plenty of times, especially in the nineties. It kind of switched over um but i, I it 's just
2: weird watching that you know after seeing fairly recently both jacob's ladder and casualties of war because those really like fucking give me nightmares and say volumes about you know uh just the inhumanity and dehumanization of war and like platoon just felt like the Lifetime Channel version of it. In contrast to those types of movies, like I know casualties of war, it's the Palma, <laughs> and yeah. you know he has his moments where it's very obvious. And like you know Sean Penn grabs his dick and then says this is a weapon. But I don't know, man. Like the, I I buy you know those actors far more than a lot of the ones in uh, in um in platoon, with the exception of Willem Dafoe, of course, but. Uh, I I, like I, this. There's so I, many better I, Vietnam
3: movies. Well, I mean,
1: Jacob's Lad- Jacob's Ladder is less is not like Platoon. Jacob's Ladder is is more like Born on the Fourth of July. Jacob's Ladder is an after Vietnam movie.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Um, that's but true. I, I, as that's far, far as kind of Casualties of, like, of what War, war like, does to people,
1: I think I kind of like Casualties of War more than Platoon as well. At least I certainly remember liking it uh, um, uh, enough um, when we were preparing for the De Palma episode. Um, yeah, but like. Which is the only and last time I saw it, but like, the casualties of war just benefits from having a story. <laughs> yeah, like no, it, no casualties of war is kind of a lifetime story too. It's it's like there is rape in platoon as well, but it's not done as the big issue. It's not a big mm-hmm. issue movie about uh, about American soldiers raping innocent civilians in underdeveloped countries, like like uh, casualties of war is, and but. Casualties of War just benefits from having a plot. For lack of a better word. You know what I mean? Like, Platoon doesn't really have a plot. It has themes and it has an arc, but it's just sort of a series of events. And to me, that seems less... Like, it still has all the cliches, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily defending Platoon as a movie I liked a lot, but, like, it feels... If you were gonna... If I was gonna charge the Lifetime movie um, accusation towards any, it would probably be more towards, like, something like Casualties of War. Than platoon.
2: Yeah, I I guess I just get caught up more because I buy the actors. Yeah, and,
4: and again, you know, well, they're I mean, just Michael given. Michael
2: Fox and Sean Penn. They're just John C. Riley.
1: They're just there's a lot They're just given more something more specific to do, and yeah, and as, yeah a, and no, as a viewer, fair. you just are following their characters more because their characters are more. Specific. like, that's the problem with platoon. That's the problem with. I mean, that's the huge problem with Natural Born Killers. Is Natural Born Killers. Nothing. Like, I was like, forget that movie never ends. That movie never begins. Like, there's no plot. There's no tension. There's no goals anyone's trying to achieve. It's just like you're watching. You're like, wait, what are they doing? Like, where are they now? So are the cops after them? Are they not after them? How does everyone in the universe know who they are and they haven't been caught? Like, how close are they being caught? It's just never brought up. It's just, it's all a bunch of scenes with no purpose and no scene really leads to the next scene. Um until they get captured. Um
4: it's that movie really is, is like a, a giant set of sketches. Like it Yeah. Without a doubt. Like there's the stupid Rodney Dangerfield sketch in that movie and it's it's all just like a giant collection of sketches.
2: And yet the first time I saw it, I mean, as a teenager and stuff and like, oh yeah, I love music videos and crazy shit, and this was the same year Pulp Fiction came out it was undeniable like the effect that this movie had on people my age yeah. like we were it, it, was,
1: if it you're, was I mean there's insane. not there, there's not any other movies like this I mean what no What? Uh, like I'm trying to even think of a movie that just has the feeling like there's certainly no crime movies that were like this before um I like the I, I was trying to think of it I think the only other movie I can think of that even stylistically or structurally is like natural born killers is like the monkey's head You know, like the monkey's head feels like someone switching channels and it goes all over the place and it's all weird sketches and it's just kind of druggy and trippy. Um, I still haven't seen Domino, but is that close? No, Domino's close, but that's after. I'm talking about like before. Okay. Because I 100% believe that if you're a teenager in the 90s and you're not thinking about things critically – because I mean this – because Natural Born Satire – Natural Born Killers is satire, but it's satire on the most base level. Which, yes. which is just like media glorifies violence, or what are the ways media glorifies violence? Media glorifies violence. Okay, interesting. So, like, um, are there any like sort of structural reasons why the media glorifies violence? Okay, cool. You're just going to keep hit, hitting that button over again. Cool.
2: That's what he does. Yeah, I I know. And yet there's again like moments where I actually I, I it's it, it's just a strange experience rewatching this, knowing how much I love this, and then going back to it, going oh. Like, there there are things in this I can't believe I, you know, gave a pass, and yet, like, I I still, (laughs) we have to talk about Oliver Stone's love of Native American culture. Oh, God. Never exploiting it at all.
1: It's the worst. Never exploiting it. Oh, that's the worst. Uh,
2: I know. Oh, it's the grossest. I I mean,
1: there's a lot of gross things about Oliver Stone's movies. He kind of, I didn't get to see Heaven and Earth, (laughs) so I will say, with a possible exception of Heaven and Earth, uh, he kind of doesn't write female characters at all. Nope. Uh. mm nope. I. i But, like, the hallucinatory
2: nature of this movie, it, I don't know. Like, I, I liked the first half. I liked the road movie craziness of everything. I like when they wind up with that Indian and you sort of see, like, Woody Harrelson's, you know, uh childhood and how it's affected him. Although, like, that image just keeps popping up throughout the entire movie. Like, he's having a fever dream as a result of being on mushrooms and stuff. And, you know, like, that kind of stuff was I, I actually really liked, because you get some context to his character a little bit. Um, and then, I don't know, like, reading up and knowing that, like, Woody Harrelson's father was a serial killer, apparently, or like a he was an assassin and sh- shit like that, I mean, that... That's interesting as a side note, but um, I, I think it's it's a it's a horribly put together movie that just has things that I happen to like. Um, I actually kind of like the interplay of the interview where uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Woody Harrelson are going at each other. Um, I it's like again like I like Woody Harrelson in this movie, but I hate Juliette Lewis. I like Robert Downey Jr. in this movie, but I hate Tommy Lee Jones. You know, like they're just back and forth throughout the movie where I'm like, oh, I hate that. But that was all right. I kind of like that, you know, because it obviously has like Tarantino's blueprints. But clearly they totally fucked with his script, you know, I mean, Um, I like
4: Go ahead. ahead. I I mean, I was going to say that I like the first 15 minutes of this movie and then it's pretty much hit or miss from that, that point on. Like yeah, <laughs> like I mean, there's the Rodney Dangerfield one. Part sketch is always the part that I always go, "What on earth is this even in the film for?" And there's the like the too much TV on his chest in the Native American uh, man's uh house is ridiculous but then i like the line that the man has afterwards like bitch you knew i was a snake i'm like well that's kind of cute i guess (laughs) like i mean this it 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 goes it's so up and down right it it hits these moments where like that's pretty good and then it will do something just terrible right after You're like why are you so inconsistent it's
2: yeah and tom sizemore's character is
1: horrible uh I, laughable. It's just and dumb. I, it's dumb. It's most dumb. Of it's dumb. No, it's all dumb. It's all dumb. <laughs> I. It is so I, fr- Like it's. It's well. You know. It's satirizing the media. Like, it. Like that is such a get out of jail free card. Is the word satire? But it's bad satire. It's dumb. It has no insight. Think of any other movie that is satirical that is like well regarded, and it's never just like well it's a bunch of shit thrown at a wall and. You know, it's really great. No, it's it's it it's not saying anything. It's it, or it's saying the same thing over and over again. And it's the ugliest movie, other than I will say, Hal Hartley's *The Girl from Monday*, which is a movie that's <laughs> it's all on it's all shot on video, like you know, like early two thousands video, um, before like they figured out how to make video look like film, and it's all at twelve frames per second. So, uh, mm-hmm. Hal Hartley's *The Girl from Monday* is worse than than Natural Ward Killers. But other than that, Natural War Killers is the ugliest movie I've ever seen. It is... It's gross looking. It's... It's boring. It's not... You can't get invested in anyone um, or anything about it. Like, I couldn't care less about... Seeing flashbacks to his childhood because who gives a fuck about his childhood? Who gives a fuck about him? You've given no reason to even look at anyone involved as a human being. I mean, I'm going to say like it's the same thing about Hal Har- as the Hal Hartley movies where it's just if I can't suspend my disbelief enough to see anyone as a human being, then I'm not going to be really invested in them. I'm o- they only serve the purpose they serve in the film, and if the purpose they only serve in the film is the broadest, most like 17 year old, like just writing the word. Fuck school onto your binder in permanent marker, like, like level. That is exactly what this like level of satire. Like, then I, it's it's the worst. It's like genetically engineered to irritate me.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Again, maybe it's just like the feeling I had when I first saw it, and it's sort of like energizing me to get excited about movies because of like just the insanity of the the editing and. the 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 format changes and all that stuff like that is obnoxious i'm i'm not denying that like i i don't i would never want to sit through a movie like this again i think um for the time and place though it 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 just it, it tapped into something and certainly that's has like stayed with me to where i can't like ultimately say uh it has no merit it's not worth anybody's time maybe it's just more of like a um you know a Like looking back in a yearbook or something and seeing Natural Burn Killers and going, oh man, remember when I saw that with these friends and we loved it? And, you know, it it was just, you know, kind of this crazy movie that at a time meant something that is like, you know, ad nauseum now. It's like being hit over the head with a ball-peen hammer over and over and over again. Um, And, you know, even recently watching something like uh, *Bowling for Columbine you know in terms of what the media is doing and instilling fear and you know focusing on the negative constantly that movie has no pretense has a sense of humor is actually insightful and interesting and yes it's a documentary and it's a you know it's a personal statement but it says a lot more in a very interesting and entertaining way that uh you know natural born killers sort of fails at I mean, he was focusing, obviously someone like Michael Moore is focusing on a very specific event and trying to, you know, uh, dive into the details of everything surrounding it, too. Um, But, like, that sequence with, you know, that plays with uh, what a wonderful world and pulling for Columbine showing all these horrific events um, in our nation's history or just the montage of ridiculous news stories that the media perpetuates, that to me is... far more interesting and insightful than anything in natural born killers has to say
1: about the media. it almost feels like uh, michael moore picked up the oliver stone torch in in uh in that decade it, yeah like oliver stone made any given sunday uh and then it was five yeah. years before he made another fictional film and that was alexander and then it was two years which I, I i which i hear is horrible and I've oh never my god it was
4: it. oh my god it was so bad i couldn't get through it i got like 30 minutes in it to cut i had to stop I, it was apparently just so the, terrible. The, apparently the director's cut just came out and that's better but i it's not the kind of movie i'm particularly interested in i mean right. it's it's kind of like you sit down and you realize like after 30 minutes you still have three hours left and you're like no yeah. oh, no. That's
1: that's how I that's how I felt after Natural Born Killers was. I'm like, "Well, at least I'm at the end of the movie." And then I looked and I had 40 minutes left. I'm like, "What? What? He's interviewing him. There shouldn't be 40 minutes left. That's 10 minutes." Um, oh god, the source. But um uh but like, you know, Michael Moore like picked up sort of he has that energy. He has that self-aggrandizing nature uh, of yeah. Oliver Stone. He, you know, But he has a sense of humor, too. Well, yeah, no, but Oliver Stone has a sense of humor, too. It's just he wasn't funny. (laughs) (laughs) Like Michael Moore. Michael Moore has a sense of humor, and I mean, I don't know. Whether or not you consider him funny, I'd say it's a draw. Um, I mean, Michael –
4: Depends on what he's doing. Michael Moore. Michael Moore is willing to go to Guantanamo Bay and get a loudspeaker and say, we only want the same health care you're giving the evil ones. So,
1: (laughs) yeah. like kind of – Michael Moore does the same sort of broad thing. Um, you know, you think about the controversy that surrounded, you know, movies like uh, JFK or Natural Born Killers, and it's it it's not that different than the controversy that surrounds something like Fahrenheit Nine Eleven, which is like yeah. people just condemning the sister corp, the uh, sort of parent corporations who made the film, like, I can't believe Disney would release Fahrenheit nine eleven, and and like, before JFK came out, people were just decreeing, like, I can't believe the studio would release this movie. We read an early script, and we think it's blah, blah, like... It's, you know, like, Warner Brothers, shame on you, (laughs) you know, like, for for JFK. (laughs) And then the other thing is, about like, Oliver Stone now is it's kind of redundant, because... Like Oliver Stone, like his next after um, any given Sunday, his next super Oliver Stony kind of movie was W. And, yeah. and W just what that was just kind of a wet fart at the end of the presidency. And I know, and it was the I was shocked because instead, instead of spearheading the conversation, he just sort of came at the end and gave this weird little SNL sketch of a movie, pretty much, and. I mean, I don't don't hate, I don't hate W, but it's kind of uh, just a light farce. It doesn't really have much weight to it at all. But
2: like the thing, it's just weird that like the fire and energy and just like you know whether if it's sensationalistic or over the top with W and World Trade Center, it's
1: not it's not the same Oliver Stone we're used to. Well, I think the other
3: the other,
1: the reason he sort of became redundant during the Bush administration is just like the Daily Show existed. You know? Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah no the, kidding. the Colbert Report, towards the end of that, like, the Colbert Report says, like, like, we had a daily show that was completely dedicated to taking the piss out of the American government um, and the media. Like, those were the right. two things that it was dedicated to doing. And, like, at that point, like, Oliver Stone, he's working in feature films. He's not going to be able to be as reactionary as he used to be, he's not going to be able well, to uh, aggravate people the way he used to.
2: Honestly, the best thing I think he's done outside of, you know, JFK is a long series called The Untold History of the United States. It moves at such a fast clip with, you know, historical facts mixed with some conjecture and his political theories and uh, conspiracies here and there, but it digs at the heart of what, you know, Oliver Stone finds fascinating. I, I don't know if he was ever meant to make movies, but he's a political theorist and passionate about it, almost like a uh, Howard Zinn or something. He just he do, since he doesn't know subtlety at all, or he doesn't really want to focus on uh, you know character arcs or anything. He he might just be better at you know like these sort of uh, you know documentary series type things. Yeah, documentaries. Have you gotten a
1: chance to see the like the Castro documentaries or South of the Border? No,
2: but I I gotta say like the Untold History of the United States. There's there's bits and pieces of. All the things that you know have gone on in our country that he has found interesting, even you know going back to the JFK assassination years later, and you know it's 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 got his voice all over it, and he's really you know genuine throughout. To where I'm like, this is what he was meant to do, I think. Yeah. Overall, he's not meant to make things like U-turn. <laughs> that's for sure.
1: I uh, I should check out Untold History United States. Uh, south of the Border is interesting. There's little Mm -hmm. moments here and there where it's sort of vintage, fiery Oliver Stone, like when he's talking about the conspiracies that were against Hugo Chavez um, uh, before Hugo Chavez was elected democratically and then he's elected democratically and then taken out of office and he's elected again. And like there's moments where he's examining like uh, a riot scene in which shots were fired and it was accused that – Um, pro Hugo Chavez, people were firing shots, but then he was like, you know, he was showing all the angles and like, nah, it wouldn't work. And it's got that old kind of JFK vibe to it. That's fun. But, um, the weird thing about South of the Border is so like Oliver Stone's, like I said, like one of the things that makes his movies more interesting is that he's kind of rude. But the thing about South of the Border is it's a movie that is about, that is, that is protesting sort of North American intervention in South America. It's all these South American countries who have democratically elected uh, presidents and all these presidents they enact their, all these leftist movements and these socialist policies. And it's about sort of how America hates that. And they brand all these people as terrorists and friends of terrorists and communists and and dictators and stuff, because these people suddenly aren't going to play ball with America anymore. So it's about the idea of South America should be left alone and all the ignorant assholes in America who want to run South America should leave it alone. And But the way the movie plays out is Oliver Stone keeps putting himself in the movie <laughs> and he just... Very <laughs> uh, <he>, uh, <laughs> Michael Moore of him. Yeah, yeah. And he just acts like an annoying, rude American the whole time. Like, Wonderful. There's this part... Uh, <laughs> There's this, so it's Oliver Stone as Borat. Yeah, it's <laughs> that's what it sounds like. It almost it almost does feel like uh, like he's talking to uh, Evo Morales, and he brings Evo Morales a gift of coca leaves, um, which is you know you chew them and a sort of like a caffeine rush.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and uh, he like brings them these coca leaves, so that and then Evo Morales is like sort of like oh ha 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 that's really nice, but. Uh, uh, Oliver Stone like offers him some and Eva Re- like oh, those coca leaves aren't any good like those those are the wrong coca leaves and then Oliver Stone's like oh can you show me how to eat coca leaves and so like they bring him to so, like they stop the interview to bring him coca leaves from Eva Morales' kitchen or whatever and then during the whole time the, the president of Bolivia he's the first um, indigenous uh, president of that country he's the first indigenous person to be elected president of Bolivia. The whole time he's talking about, like, the, the threat of political assassination and all the hardships his country's going through. It just keeps cutting back to Oliver Stone just, like, masticating these leaves <laughs> and, like, not looking at him at all. And there's, like, moments like that all the time where Oliver Stone just comes across as, like, he's, like, telling an interesting story, but he comes across as, like, the annoying asshole <laughs> in the middle of it. Um, so it's, it almost has kind of an interesting meta text as far as just like him being the representative for, um, ugly Americans who should stay out of South America's business. <laughs> um, wow. but it's, hmm, that's interesting it, it's, to see. it's, yeah, it's not a bad movie, but it, it, it is like a little, it doesn't go far enough that that is like a really fascinating way to watch the whole movie. He mostly just comes across as rude. Um, but it is sort of a good, if you don't know anything about uh, South America in the past, like thirty, forty years, like the post Hugo Chavez kind of South America, um, then uh, it's a good movie to see and kind of catch you up. But uh, I, I mean, yeah, I think. I mean, he does a lot of interviews like that now, where he'll he's not making movies about Iraq, but during his interviews for the second Wall Street movie, he's talking about Iraq and Afghanistan and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. yeah,
2: yeah. The- Again, like Wall Street 2, was just it, it felt like you know going back to the well and the themes of Wall Street, only in you know in context of what's going on with you know capitalism and our banks now, and you know how something like Enron has changed the uh, climate of what it's like to be a, a broker on Wall Street, and you know like again you, the the first Wall Street, I you know after watching that, I was like. This is not Wolf of Wall Street, and that's, you know, that's not to say, like, okay, you know, this movie has no merit, and why should I bother watching it, but if I'm going to watch those themes, you know, portrayed, I would much rather enjoy myself (laughs) with something like Wolf of Wall Street. Wall Street, it's, you know, the Oliver Stone's Wall Street takes itself so seriously and has, again, kind of a, you know, subpar Charlie Sheen at the lead, and... I mean, Michael Douglas is great. He sort of just became that archetype of you know the rich, greedy asshole as a result of that movie. And but again, he has like you know your 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 pulpit-like monologue in the middle of that movie where it's like greed works, you know, and just like just spouting off his uh, you know philosophy on on life and how we are, and I'm just, it just it gets annoying. When he just has those, uh, you know, leftist, you know, feelings about everything and just spouts them off literally into a microphone at some point or through, uh, voiceover narration. And I think that's what bugs me the most. Whereas something like Salvador, really doesn't have any of that.
1: Not
4: minimal. Yeah, it's it's more, it's minimal. A scene or two. You didn't get to see Salvador? Uh, No, I did. Um, It was funny because Salvador was the first film that I watched that I actually felt like Oliver Stone liked movies, if that makes sense. Like the opening credits of that scene – of that film feel very much like something out of a kind of campy exploitation film or like Night of the Living Dead or something. It, it, it's kind of something I didn't really... I was like, well, why does Oliver Stone make movies is the question I kept asking myself as I was going through his filmography. And I realized that I feel like he actually does like movies after I was watching Salvador. I mean, Salvador feels very much like a film before it feels like a message. I mean, it does kind yeah, of have moments yeah. where it's a message, but it feels like the story of... Um, God, I'm blanking on what's James Wood's character's name. Um, James, the character, what? James Wood's character... It feels much like the story of his life before. It feels like the story of the El Salva- the Salvadorian civil war.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, 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 it's more of a character study, and uh, you know, James Woods. God, he's just he's always good. But this is this role is sort of tailor made. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of. It sort of becomes like you know between James Woods and James Valucci the uh, you know um, fear and loathing in Las Vegas kind of style of hanging out it is which I enjoy yeah well
1: I mean the movie was inspired by like Gonzo journalism and and Thompson and stuff Um, it's it's funny because like once you see James Woods in this movie you're like oh yeah this is the most James Woodsy character I've ever seen James Woods play. Like he's so fat, like at every point he's fucking having confession and he's still trying to like smooth talk the priest. Like at no point does he right. stop trying to smooth talk every character he's talking to. Um, as, even after, well after he's way over his head, um, you know, and he's just that, he is just that smarmy dick of a character and it's so great. And then you learn, I, I learned, I looked up on IMDb, like originally Oliver Stone wanted Marlon Brando or Lee Marvin to play those char- that character. What? Like, I can't, yeah, I can't even picture it. Like, it's a, or Martin oh, Sheen. God. It's, like, all three, just, like, completely oh, different Bro- movie.
4: Yeah, no, uh, wow. that wouldn't work at all. I mean, the other thing, too, I like about Salvador is he doesn't go crazy, if that makes sense. Like, no. it very much follows, a, like, a basic film structure, if that makes sense. Like, he doesn't yeah. go crazy in the editing. There's really only one scene that I can think of where he does kind of blare the score. One or two towards the end that he blares the score yeah. and tries to go for the big emotional point. Most of it is just kind of character dialogue. And oh,
2: yeah. For the most part, we're following, you know, just what photojournalists do. And I mean, it. I wouldn't say it bogged down with, you know, the love story because, you know, it, it plays a big role into you know what happens at the end
1: and no and it's a big it's, part it's of his arc, it's his arc it's not just it's yeah, not perfunctory yeah. by any stretch it doesn't right. start off as a love story it starts off as him using her <laughs> like
2: yeah exactly <laughs> uh, but it cha- but it changes him and, yeah you know that's 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 what I really liked about this movie well about. I mean just, the
1: biggest image in the movie for me. Like the moment, if you're if you're gonna be Oliver Stone, you're gonna Oliver Stone it up, and you're gonna have these big moments with blaring score where someone gives a speech over these incredible images. It would just be that mount. It would just be that giant pile of bodies. Yeah. And during that whole scene, they're having a conversation about photography and journalism. They're not talking about why those people are there. These two people are talking about their careers, and they're talking about, and it's that, and it's not spoken in. It's not spoken. It explicitly it's just in it's just hinted at implicitly that like james woods is getting his first sort of pangs of a conscience ever you know that the kind of thing that he's drank away since he used to be a journalist 10 years ago you know um he keeps going back to his glory days whenever he's offering his credentials <laughs> like it, it, it's sort of almost a uh casablanca sort of the thing where you know he burnt out and he doesn't want to be part of that life anymore and then he gets sucked back in you know through his love of this woman and he he wants to get involved again, and slowly he becomes uh not even like that 's the great thing about this movie is he doesn 't become this white savior character he doesn 't He never becomes like an activist really like right. he he never it doesn 't like evolve to the point where he 's the one giving passion speeches in America about the plight of the salvadorians like he 's still an asshole and he 's still a dick and it 's at least honest in that way about yeah, he even tells you know uh,
2: his girlfriend and then the priest, like, oh, I still want to do this shit, you know, can, is that okay? Yeah. Just, you know, I mean, he he can't help himself, and that's, it's a flawed character, it's not necessarily, like, romanticized in ways that, like, you know, other characters in Oliver Stone movies tend to get bogged down in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I was I, re-watching this, because I haven't seen this in, like, 10 or 15 years, I was taken by, like, you know, obviously there's moments where it lacks subtlety, but... He doesn't, uh, you know, do the Oliver Stone things that drive me nuts. And I was really, you know, uh, taken with it more than usual than, th- than watching all of his other movies that he's done lately. Um, and, you know, he wears his political ideology on his sleeve, but it's also in context with what's taking place in the story. And I think that's, you know, important.
4: Uh, and um, and it, it very much is restrained. Like, it's not yeah. off the off the rails. It's not too much TV. It's... You can kind of make your own decision, but this is what I think. And,
1: and also... Right. And also... Like, it's a story being told. Like, that's the craziest thing. It's like, the first 30 minutes of that are such a tight story. It's such a great... Yeah. It's almost... Like, it goes on, and it gets shaggier and shaggier as the movie goes on. Um, you know? And it's still good, but I I think it... I think the first like 45 minutes of the movie are by far the best thing about it Um, it almost feels like the setup of a Samuel Fuller movie or something like the very economical way he's setting up these sort of despicable character and the dire straits they're in like where he's so out of money and then he's not only out of money he's left in an apartment without anything in it but a TV and a dirty diaper like <laughs> and just like yeah, there and he's there. in jail and like and, yeah, yeah, and they the go rhythm. and they find out the dog's dead and then they're in jail and then they drive to El Salvador and then it hits the 20 minute mark like just like that like really quickly mm-hmm yeah and then the confrontation and
2: you know <laughs> Jim Belushi freaking out like there's just a lot of things yeah you know Compacted into that 40 minutes, but it doesn't, you know, feel crowded at the same time. Like you're so focused on these two characters, then you get to know other photojournalists, and you know, I, I, I like the, I like the, you know, the, the idea of, you know, taking this angle of uh, following, uh, you know, photographers into this world and how they adapt to it. Um, and especially like, you know, it, it plays to James Wood's strengths, but I mean, also uh, Oliver Stone, he you know, again, it's, it's very disciplined, and it's weird, like, he made this and Platoon in the same year, whereas, like, I didn't get the same, like, sort of manipulative tactics that I got from Platoon and this at all. I mean, there's certain moments, and certainly, like, that, that ending, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little preachy, and the score gets raised, and, you know, the, the overhead shot of them, you know, is getting arrested and her driving away, but... I felt genuine emotion in this as opposed to Platoon, so...
4: And and that's the thing. He really does let you connect to James Wood's character. Like, before he actually decides he wants to blare the score, he connects... He makes you kind of feel for James Wood's character.
1: And it's just an endearing character. It's really cool. It's just a cool kind of... uh, shyster, kind of (laughs) shucking and jiving kind of character trying to play all the angles all the time. Like, it's a... it's and, and i mean the other, and i don't know i think maybe oliver stone when he gets passionate about something it blinds him from everything else like i don't know how i don't know how else to explain natural born killers <laughs> you know other than well he he was he was going through a divorce and he was taking lots of drugs and out came natural born killers. it's always it's always a divorce that makes sense. is that his yeah. divorce movie really <laughs> yeah pretty much that's amazing Ugh. it's always a divorce like but i i think like with platoon he was just he was you know too passionate about it to structure a really proper story, and he was just too earnest and whereas this movie, this is based on like a story a friend told him he didn't have actual like real life experience in South America like he cared about South America. You don't make the movie like this um a tiny movie like this and struggle to get it made without caring, but like this wasn't his story, and therefore he's able to look at it more objectively and sort of craft this character of james woods and like um do all that and just it ends up just playing like way better.
2: hmm Yeah, most definitely. I, I remember seeing uh we can sort of get ready to wrap things up, but um God. I remember even when I was kind of into classic rock, I hated the doors so the much. The band when or the, the movie. It. Both but like, I mean, I will admit, hell, fucking Val Kilmer, looks the part. He's completely like, you know, immersed into that character for sure. But God, I just, I, I, I don't remember it too well to comment. But I, I definitely remember like having this
1: insanely negative reaction to all of it. Maybe it's because um, it's the most awful thing ever. It is. It is the longest movie ever. It's. It, so here's the crazy thing about the doors. The crazy thing about the doors is if I was going to make a movie about how fucking horrible the doors are and what a fucking stupid drunken asshole Jim Morrison was, I would make the doors. I would make this exact movie. <laughs> I would change. Well, that's probably how he was. I changed nothing about it. But like, you would think Oliver Stone made this. He must mythologize Jim Morrison in some way. But he. But Jim Morrison really doesn't come across as anything but the worst fucking asshole in existence at any point during the movie.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, again, like, I mean, he's kind of known as being that obnoxious drunk, but, like, I thought he was, you know, a bad poet, and I don't know, like, I remember (laughs) seeing that movie and just being, like, really. uh, I felt like everything was so heavy handed and so in your face, and the. Indian. Ooh, yeah, yeah, he had, he had the stuff. spirit of the
1: Indian oh. inside him, Jim. Yeah, that, like one time when he was a kid he, was kid, he saw a Native American, American and, therefore and therefore the spirit, spirit of Native, Native, Native Americans, Americans runs inside him inside forever. Him forever. <laughs>
2: One time, when Jim Morrison was a
1: child, he saw a native American on the side of the road and informed the rest of his life. It wasn't that he was a drunken fucking asshole. It was that he had a mysterious, ancient American spirit. A native American spirit. Come join Jim Morrison as he says shitty poetry and drinks vodka. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Sounds like a good time, yep. which it isn't at all. It's not entertaining, and it made me hate Jim Morrison even more.
1: Uh, is, is that like I both like guys'
4: sorry? Is that both of your guys' pick for like the worst Oliver Stone movie? Then
1: Natural Born Killers is the worst Oliver Stone movie. That's what? Natural Born Killers uh, has the worst assholes doing the worst things in every scene, but it's also the ugliest movie ever. So Natural Born <laughs> Killers, is as if The Doors was also the ugliest movie you've ever seen. Hmm. Uh, I'd probably go with the doors.
4: Mine's any given Sunday, like I. <laughs> I oh,
2: really, and Patrick likes any given Sunday. I like it all right.
4: Yeah. yeah. I mean, my issue with any given Sunday was when I was watching it. The first ten minutes, as somebody that watches sports, the first ten minutes were absolutely like infuriatingly frustrating for me because I had no idea what was happening on the field. Like, yeah, I, I couldn't tell who had the ball or like what what they were doing or any of it. And I was super frustrated with the whole thing. And then on top of that, it kind of just devolves into one kind of tired and facile sports movie cliche after another. Um.
1: Yeah, God. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, just, and, I just disagree
4: ugh. with you about the first 10 minutes. Like, I think the first
1: 10 minutes are really great. I think the first – that whole scene where it's just you're seeing the, the game from all of these different levels, from the spectator level, from the player's level, from the coach's level, from the owner's level – uh, and from the from the news from the reporters level, I think all that's really good.
4: Um, I think it's really dizzying and over edited. That's what I was saying. I think there's a better way to do it so that I understand what's happening.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, like, I never had. A, I mean, I never had a problem to understanding what's happening. But uh, apparently, any given Sunday is so many people's least favorite Oliver Stone movie. Honestly, just the fact that it was sports cliches meant it was based in something, and it wasn't just someone being an asshole at every moment in every scene like I can't I mean hate, you can't hate it's still obnoxious I, no it's not nearly as obnoxious as the doors or natural born killers I mean well, granted I didn't want rewatch this uh, for this podcast I saw natu- I saw any given Sunday like two or three years ago so uh, if I were I could revisit it and have the same reaction but from what I recall um, it's at least a story with a uh, suspension of
4: disbelief which is more than I can say for natural born killers I mean, I was suspended of disbelief up until the guy had his eye popped out in the field. Um, that was pretty and then great. Was, yeah,
3: yeah. Pretty
1: great scene. <laughs> oh my god.
4: Yeah, that was like, oh, that's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, everyone, everyone mm-hmm. hates, everyone hates any given Sunday. I don't know. Maybe I'll have to rewatch it and see what you guys see. But then again, after prepping for this episode, I never, ever, ever want to watch an Oliver Stone movie ever again. Like, I, yeah. I actually have another. You know,
4: I actually have another question about Oliver Stone. Like, is it in every one of his movies he has like a ridiculous end credit text thing?
1: Yeah, yeah, and like, or and most of yeah, them open much. with
4: Bible quotes or some. Yeah, like something, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like the most annoying thing for me was watching Salvador and then getting Maria and her children who were still like at large in Guatemala. Like, I don't need to know that they actually escaped and made it to Guatemala. Like, it's actually yeah. more effective if I think that they died. Like.
1: Yeah, the I mean I the the part at the end where it's like it's still receiving the most amount of USAID, like I that that's the sort of thing that it's that's the reason you're making that movie to begin with. You know, mm-hmm. so I get that part, but yeah, the whole uh catching everyone up in a couple blocks of text. Uh actually I saw a movie uh last week, uh by Errol Morris called Tabloid, and that is the best example of that. Because <laughs> That has. Oh yeah. Did you guys have you guys seen tabloid? Oh, nope. I
2: loved it. I just, I don't remember the ending though.
1: The uh, God, let me f- see if I can find it. The ending, um, the ending uh, text of tabloid was something. Oh, where is it? Da, 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 Shit. Okay. Well, I guess I'll have to find it later. But it was something like. Nope, I'm gonna find it now. Go ahead, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: I did, I, I did see Savages in the theater, and don't remember a thing about. Well, you could go back I to the
1: uh, Lars von Trier episode if you wanted to.
2: Oh, did I talk about it there? Yeah, sure did. Oh, okay. I only remember, I remember it because that's liking- one of the
1: few episodes I wasn't on.
2: I remember liking it and just thinking it was a stupid genre movie, and not really, you know, getting really caught up in it because all the characters were. Pretty much cartoon characters again, um, and you know it has moments of that hyperactive visual style. Uh, but I mean, yeah, not not the most compelling story in the world, and you know his uh, you know commentary on on the current drug war, and that's all there. It's 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 a dumb crime thriller that's just not as obnoxious and annoying as U Turn is. Um, so I mean it's it's definitely not something I would ever rush out to see again or recommend. Is
1: is like. U-turn in the not natural born killer style necessarily, but is it in the
2: Oh yeah, no it is. I think it is. I think it's very oh, much gosh. shot like natural born killers. No way. It's it yeah, there's
1: I, no way it's as big as natural as natural born killers. There's no way it's, it's crazy. It doesn't switch to, as crazy. And, yeah. But it does switch to black and white and Well sure. So it's more like it's, it's and, more the JFK Nixon style than the because natural yeah. born killers is its own crazy other thing.
2: Yeah, but uh, every every character in U Turn is grating and obnoxious and every like I don't even know what what Sean Penn was thinking. I, it's just it's, it's this is a it's a one of the biggest wastes of a great cast and everything about it is obnoxious. I just hate this movie with every fiber of my being.
1: Sure, it sounds bad. Oh. I, I mean, I, yeah, I didn't see it for that reason. Um, Here is the closing epilogue of Tabloid. That be a good way to end it. Joyce McKinney is still working on her book. Scotland Yard never pursued her extradition. She lives with her five Booger clones, Booger Hong, Booger Raw, Booger Mac, Booger Park, and Booger Lee. That sounds very Earl
4: Morris. So if
1: so if you, uh, so just those three disparate pieces of information tell you what a crazy story is in uh, tabloid. I like that quite a bit too. It's certainly not uh, one of the best Earl Morris movies, but it's it's really good.
2: All right, guys, let's give our top three Oliver Stone movies.
1: Um, Am I gonna go first? You sure are. I knew it. I, d- I played the. I we we both played chicken, and you talked first. You lost, buddy. <laughs> I know that always happens. I, I don't like uncomfortable silences, especially since it's
2: considered dead air, Barry. Mm-hmm. Dead air. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number one is JFK. Number two is Nixon,
1: and number three is Salvador. Really, you like Nixon at more than Born on the Fourth of July. Mm-hmm.
2: huh. It's true I mean, Born on the 4th of July would be 4th or 5th I, I still have a soft spot for Talk Radio I know I shouldn't, but I do
1: Wow, okay Well, my number my number one is JFK My number two is Born on the 4th of July And uh, uh, my number three is Salvador
4: mm. uh, And then I guess I'll finish it up with having JFK as well as my number one Salvador as my number two And probably Talk Radio as my three Yay! Yeah, I mean, I wasn't graded by talk radio. Uh, I think it's actually half decent. But
2: we need we need to end this with Patrick's impersonation of Eric Bogosian. All you have to do is scream "Go away!" and uh, put the echo effect on your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Go Go away! away. (laughs) Perfect. Ten out of ten. Well, Thomas, it's been great having you on this episode. Blast talking with you. Uh, I have to do this again.
4: It's been a pleasure. Um, Thank you guys so much for uh, letting me uh, appear on this and hopefully not be horrible. But thank you very much.
2: Not at all. Not at all. So where can we find you these days? I know you've Uh, got other projects going on.
4: Yeah, I'm all over the place. You can still find the old Big Kahuna Burger audio somewhere, probably by searching it. Through MixCloud or iTunes. Uh, currently I am podcasting on two podcasts. The genre conversation, which I do with Caitlin Kaminga and Michael Morris, and we look at we pick a genre, kinda of a little bit like this podcast, but not really. We pick a genre and we each pick one film from that genre and talk about it. And I'm also on this podcast with Adam Grover of Pop Junk Movies for uh, the Fantasy Movie Pod, in which each week we give each other two films to watch from a specific like category and we get we score points based off of how we, we react. Kind of like a fantasy football type thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you can find both those on iTunes, and I'm still writing at Sunset Rising Productions. So, I'm all over the place. You can come <laughs> come find me.
2: Excellent! And you can find us over at directorsclubpodcast.com
4: You can
1: send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com
2: And I'm over
1: at Letterboxed. And at Instant Jim. I'm at Letterboxd as Patrick <laughs> Ruppel. And I'm over at Twitter as Instant Jim. My Twitter is Patrick Ruppel. Nice. Yeah. We should do that every time. I'm sure that wouldn't be obnoxious. Oh, be, it, it, well, in the spirit of Oliver Stone, we were a little obnoxious at the end.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Patrick, I couldn't be more thrilled, though, because uh, I actually kind of like this next director. But there's a few movies I need to see. Um, I'm a big fan of Don't Look Now and especially Walkabout.
1: Her next director is Nicholas Rogue. I know very little about Nicholas Rogue, so I'm excited to jump in. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Um, Man Who Fell to Earth? He did that, didn't he? Yeah. That's, yeah. One, I've That's, one,
4: I've That's one
1: I've
2: seen. One I've seen. Okay. Did he actually? Yep, yeah. yep, yeah. yep.
1: Yeah.
4: Oh god, that means great.
1: Hey, you know what? Hey, you know what the most powerful drug soul, ever sold is? It's tobacco, tobacco, tobacco 30, 000, kill kills three hundred and fifty thousand people 000, a year. You know how much coke, crack, 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 heroin, and pot kill every year? Four thousand people. Listen Will a you listen sense, to a a sense? Hello. Hello, let, let check. me check. Will you listen to logic, please? Logic, the only benefit from prohibition are the gangsters making money on it, the politicians condemning it, and getting your vote. And who pays the bill? You, Ronda Q. Sucker. That was the that was the quote I was looking for. Before,
2: wow. That was. F- we should just do a bonus episode with you as Eric Gregorczyk and that metalhead. We should do a bonus as, uh, we do
1: talk radio as a radio play. Yeah. And, and you and you play uh, John C. McGinley. Oh yeah, of
2: course. I'd love to play John C. McGinley. Yeah. He's 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 the man. Yeah. Oh great, just great. Well, everybody, thanks for listening as always, and we'll talk to you in about two weeks or so, maybe three, knowing us. About Nicholas Rogue. I love you, Patrick. I love you, Jim. I forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. Okay. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye.
1: Left a bad taste in Thomas's mouth. Lucy remembers the taste of breast milk. And Morgan, and Morgan Freeman <laughs> talks, and Morgan Freeman talks like an old prospector. Ah, she's building a supercomputer.